I think the only wrong way to pray is not to pray. It doesn't matter where you pray or how you pray or anything. It's just the fact of making that connection out there and getting out of yourself. You know, I used to have a big problem when I first came in and they're like, well, you can come up with any God you want to. Use the doorknob as your God. And I was like, what do you mean by it? I can't look at the silver doorknob and think that's my God. I'm not, I may be an imbecile, but I'm not that much of an imbecile, you know. But I, now I understand what that means. It doesn't matter what you choose to call God. That's a human problem. God doesn't care what we call him. And it's just making that connection and making that attempt to reach outside of yourself. And once a little spark is lit, it can turn into a huge forest fire. All you need is that little spark to get going. So that's a, it's a powerful tool that I've learned in this program. And once you do hook up to that power, how do you think that relates to keeping you away from drugs and alcohol? I always viewed alcohol or drugs as kind of recharging my batteries, especially when I kept it on the weekends. During the week, I get wound up tight. can't wait for the weekend where I can recharge my batteries. I've realized alcohol and drugs gives you kind of a false spiritual experience. Alcohol is the solution to alcoholism. Alcoholism is our way of thinking, and we need that spiritual experience somehow. And so I have to replace that. If I remove alcohol and drugs, I have to replace that with something else, and I replace it with spirituality. The more I do that, the more comfort I take in my everyday life, the less I want drugs and alcohol. And uh, it didn't happen overnight uh, of realizing that stuff. Um, but now when I, I, I don't need to recharge my batteries, or when I do, I can stop and say a little prayer. And it took me a lot of times of trial and error to realize that works for me. That's why drugs and alcohol are a turnoff to me now. I don't need that anymore. I've, I've found it in this other way. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 80. My name is Michael, and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. The purpose of this show is to spread hope that recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you're looking for. This podcast only means of support are donations made by our listeners. All funds will be used to pay our monthly operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. I would like to keep these episodes advertisement-free, so please help support us by visiting SoberShares.com and clicking on the Donate button. Please email me your questions, comments, or show ideas to Mike at SoberShares.com. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date. I'm uh, Chris Horbin, and my sobriety date is January 10th of 2020. Awesome. Thank you. Chris is a friend of mine that I met from... Our local group. Should we mention the name of the group? Is sure. that cool with you? Yeah. yeah. Tell them the name of the group where you go. It's the Preston Group. Yep. The Preston Group in North Dallas. And it's one of my favorite groups. It's a very, very large group, I would say. They have a ton of meetings. It's very convenient geographically. It's got tons of parking, tons of nice people, and a lot of great restaurants within walking distance. So And great chairs. 
Great chair. Oh, yeah. you talking about the leather chairs? The leather chairs. Tell them about great. those chairs. Tell them about They're those. like office chairs. They're the best chairs I've ever been in a meeting in, you know, or I've ever had in a meeting. They're fully legit. They are. They're fully legit. I've been to a lot of AA meetings where they have those folding metal chairs. Correct. Ugh, those are tough. Those are really rough for me to, to deal with. But yeah, they do have some of the best chairs in Dallas. Have you ever been to The Gift over in Irving? There's an AA group called The Gift in I Irving. I have not. I've heard of it. I have not. They have fantastic chairs. Oh, really? Yeah, they're from the 70s. They're vintage chairs from the 70s. I don't know where they got them, but they got about probably 80 of them. And so for um, a number of years, they were in decline because they're green leather. Uh, so the, the frame is wood. They're gorgeous, low slung, beautiful art deco, super cool wooden frame chairs uh, covered in green leather. But they fell into a state of disrepair mm-hmm. and they took up a collection at the gift. And it was several, several, several thousand dollars to get them all redone in brand new green leather as well as new foam. Nice. And they did it. Nice. And so I highly recommend that people visit the gift when you are in Dallas as well. Actually, it's in Irving. I-R-V-I-N-G, Irving, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas right down the street. Can you please tell us about the early years of your life? What did your family look like and where you were born? Well, I was uh, born in Plano. You know, my family was only here for about two years when I happened to be born here. My, my mother's from Oklahoma City. My father's from Albuquerque, New Mexico. My dad worked for Merrill Lynch after college, and he just happened to be stationed here for two years when I was born. I have two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister, and neither one of them were born here. And when I was less than a year old, probably about nine months old, we moved to Austin, and uh, that's kind of where I grew up in Austin. Wow, Austin's a cool city. It's the capital of the state of Texas. It is. What were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person? Were you exposed to any type of spirituality or religion as a child? We went to church. We went to Episcopalian church. We were mainly Christer Christians. We went to church <laughs> on Christmas and Easter. Nice. Every once in a while, we go to church on a Sunday, but it wasn't super prevalent part of my childhood. My dad was raised kind of hardcore Catholic. His mother was from Italy. He went to Catholic school his whole life. And uh, he was married young at 18. People did that back then, a lot more common. And they, it didn't work out. She left him two years later. And so he wasn't really allowed back in the Catholic Church or be allowed to remarry in the Catholic Church. And so he kind of walked away from it. Um, and he said he realized it was kind of a sham when the Pope decided that you can now eat meat on Friday. And I heard that message growing up. I didn't give church a lot of thought. You know, when I went, I heard all these crazy stories of um, this magic that God did 2,000 years ago or even what, further ago. One of my favorite things that you've ever said in a meeting, and I never told you this about a year ago, I was sitting in a meeting with you and you were talking, you were sharing, you are doing your little two or three minute share, and you started talking about a magic sky daddy. Correct. You started talking about a magic sky daddy. That's kind of how I viewed it, is God was his magic sky daddy and he was like Santa Claus when you were good, he gave you gifts, when you were bad, he punished you. That's kind of as far as I got with it, you know, and as I got a little bit older, I kind of even more um, cemented my views on it. I became pretty agnostic, and I thought people that believed in God or Jesus or Buddha or any of that, I thought they were pretty weak-minded. They were kind of simple-minded. They weren't as intelligent as everyone else, so they needed to do that to, to find some peace in their life. 
as I got older and as I got into the program and found my own God, I realized I was the closed-minded one and the simple-minded one. It was an eye-opening thought when I had that kind of moment of clarity about it, you know. So did you enjoy your childhood much or was it a struggle? Tell me about your childhood. As a young, young child, I enjoyed it. You know, we grew up in Austin. My dad was pretty successful. We moved into a bigger house, went to the nice schools. And then in second grade, my parents divorced. It was a shock to me. It was a shock to my sisters. We never really saw my parents fight that often. And my mother was from Oklahoma City. That's where she grew up. She was only in Austin because my dad um, got his business down there and uh, moved down there for that. And so she had no one in Austin when they divorced. So she decided that we would uh, move back to Oklahoma City. So you, you and the two sisters? Me and the two sisters. Are they older than you or younger than you? I have one older, one younger. I'm the middle. Okay, how much older? Like uh, My older sister's two years older. My younger sister's three years younger. Okay, good. And um, so we, you know, I, I learned that my parents are getting a divorce. And a month later, I learned we're moving to Oklahoma City. I didn't know Oklahoma City. I'd been up there once to visit my grandparents. And so I was ripped kind of away from my friends and my father and all that stuff. You know, my, my dad told me later on that he begged her not to move and she wasn't willing to do that. And I don't blame her, you know, it's, uh, she was in a foreign place and she needed to get back in her uh, network and all that. But that had a, a much bigger impact on me than I realized at the time. I realized it later in life. And so we moved to Oklahoma City, and I don't have a father there. I'm the only boy in the household. Even our dog is a girl. It was a big uh, change in my life. And I realized now, not long after that, I started getting in trouble. Did it, did it happen during summertime, or did it happen during school? Did they have to pull you out of second grade to move back up north? No, I finished second grade in Austin. I started third grade in Oklahoma City. Okay, so it happened over the summer. It did. That's a tiny bit less traumatic, but still gnarly. It is, and um, it was just a, a big change. You know, my grandparents, uh, my, my dad's parents, lived in Albuquerque. When I was real young, they moved to Austin so they could see their grandkids grow up. Not just me, but... Um, my cousins as well. And so I was ripped away from them too. And they were a big part of my life. And I was reintroduced to my mom's parents, my other grandparents, which I didn't know that well. And they were good people, but it was all just a big life changing event. I didn't realize it until later, but it, it made me start seeking attention, doing attention seeking behavior. What also was the big change is my father wasn't in my life anymore. He couldn't come to my ball games. He couldn't come to my school plays. I mean, he did as much as he could, but yeah. it's a six-hour drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he flew us down to Austin every other weekend. Okay, I was just wondering if it was a clean break or if he stayed involved. No, he stayed very involved, and he was there as much as he could financially. But when mm -hmm. you live yeah, six that hours. far away, you cannot be there for everything, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah. We talked on the phone, and... Um, he did as much as he could. Now that I'm older and I have my own kids, I realized how much he actually did, you know. Mm -hmm. At the time, it didn't feel like that. Right. And he had had an affair with my mom, and my mom told us that, too. So I had a little anger towards mm -hmm. my dad. I don't think my mom should have told me that in third grade, but <laughs> I knew it, you know. And yeah. so I started having uh, my world as I knew it started changing. 
and I didn't know why, but I didn't like it, you yeah. know? And uh, you said you turned to drugs and alcohol in your 20s. Mm-hmm. Well, and I learned this later in life, uh, and we'll get to this point, but when I went to treatment, my dad uh, saved notes of uh, therapy that I was in as a younger um maybe teenager or maybe when I was 12 or so. And, uh, I took my first drink when I was nine years old. Really up in Oklahoma, up in Oklahoma. I stole my mom's wine and drank it to get drunk. So I started turning to it pretty quick too, you know, and pretty early too. And, uh, I didn't know I was turning towards it for those reasons. I think I was just acting up. I saw parents do it and it looked cool, you know? Yeah. It's too early to start drinking. It is. That's too early. It is. We want to shout out to all our listeners and make a public (laughs) service announcement to 13. There's not a lot of social drinkers at nine years old. (laughs) It's not a good idea. So don't, don't engage in that. I started drinking at 13 and that's too young. It is. I really did. I started drinking at 13. I started doing drugs at 15. And I want to make an announcement. That's too young. It is. That's too young. Because I was still a child. And I was still trying to form my uh, deal. But I used it like medicine. Um, and it worked for a long time. It was like anesthesia for life and lubricant, social lubricant for me. And it really fixed a lot of things and worked for a very long time until it didn't. Well, and I have two children over nine years old. And I can't imagine them drinking. You right, know? Right. Like it is shocking that that happened. But it started affecting a lot of things pretty quickly, you yeah. know, and that was in fourth grade. By fifth grade, I was getting in so much trouble, I was sent to another school. I didn't drink every day at that, at that point, but by the time I was 11 or 12, I was drinking more often. What did it do for you? I just thought it was fun. I just thought it was a cool experience. I, You know, I also had this attitude when I was younger that I don't know why people treat me like a child, but I'm an adult. You started thinking that pretty early. I did. I always thought I was older than I was. So what do older people do? They drink, you know? Did you smoke cigarettes too? I did. In fourth grade, I got caught stealing cigarettes um, from the local grocery store. <laughs> How did you even get near where they keep the cigarettes as a little kid? I don't know. Well, they, back then, they used to keep cigarettes in different places, you yeah, know? And yeah. at the gas stations, they were on wire racks right next to the <sighs> counter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they used to have, remember those, um, I don't know if you're old. How old are you now? I'm uh, 44. Okay, you're probably maybe too young. Do you remember the self-serve um, cigarette machines? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That you would go and put money in and yeah. pull that knob, and then it would just throw the cigarettes you off the You needed like 250 and quarters, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, they still have a few of those, and now it's like $14. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah, it's $14 a pack, I, uh, <clears throat> and you have to they have a credit card reader on there. You can put your credit card on there, and it'll spit you out a $14 pack of cigarettes. So what were you drinking, wine? Were you a wine? Yeah, whatever I could steal (laughs) at the time, whatever was in my mom's liquor cabinet or my friend's parents' liquor cabinet. Were you trying to turn your friends onto it or were you just doing it yourself? You know, I hung out a lot with my older sister and her friends and they were doing it too. You know, they were a couple years older and they were in sixth, seventh grade. Um, They were still too young, but they were older. I saw them doing it. Some of my friends were doing it too. But it wasn't a, a huge crowd of people doing it. And I just want to reiterate, by fourth grade, I wasn't doing it every weekend or anything. Mm-hmm. By seventh grade, I was doing it as often as I could. My mother had bought a bottle of wine right when 
me and my sisters were born and she was going to open it and drink it with us when we were 21 okay. and I drank all those <laughs> and I felt horrible, you know, she f- called you out on it eventually. She's like, yeah, what? eventually she was like, what happened? I mean, she didn't look for it all the time, but she, eventually she found it and paint a little bit more of a picture for me about your drinking and how it progressed into the high school years, middle school years. What, what did that look like? So by seventh grade, I was doing whatever I could get my hands on. Um, I was running with the crowd that did whatever they could get their hands on. Back then, it was a lot easier for a person at 13, 12, 13 years old to get drugs than it was alcohol. You needed ID for alcohol. You didn't need ID for drugs. What were you doing? Do you mind saying or not really? You don't no, it's fine. I, uh, I was smoking weed. I was taking many thins. You remember those? Those little <laughs> pills? Yeah. Um, that was for I, what? Energy, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was by the time I was 14, I've done cocaine one time, one or two times, um, done LSD a couple times. There's um, a lot of drugs up in Oklahoma. There are. I yeah. think it's still that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are. You know, meth wasn't really a thing back then. I think it is up there now. I think it is also. <laughs> and it gets uh, pretty cranked up in Oklahoma by it now. It is. You know, if heroin was in front of me, I would have done it, but I just was never exposed to it. So by the time I was... In seventh grade, eighth grade, I was ditching class a lot. I was getting in trouble. I was getting in trouble in school. Um, I remember one time we lit those black cap fireworks uh, in school, and I threw it in the vice principal's office, and so I got in trouble for that. And was, he in, was he or she in she, there? Uh, she was not, but uh-huh. it was pretty obvious it was me pretty quick, and I got suspended for it, and um, so I was getting suspended. I was getting in-school suspension. I was ditching class if people had things. And um, so by the time I was 14, I was getting in so much trouble, my mother sent me to live with my dad in Austin. Okay. Uh, she thought I needed a, and he thought I needed a male figure in my life, and what, I probably did. I was about to say, what do you think? Uh, I think I did, but I was not happy about that decision at the time. <laughs> but you're like, what? All my friends were up there. I knew no one in Austin anymore, uh-huh. even though I went every other weekend. You don't really make friends unless you're in school, mm-hmm. you know? And so I went to Austin. My dad's very strict, uh, still is very strict yeah. and re- much, uh, very much a disciplinarian. And so I was not looking forward to going down there and living with him. But I did, and he was married to this lady named Lynn. I really liked her. Uh-huh. And I so I started uh, ninth grade in Austin. And within a month or two, I was in the same crowd I was in in Oklahoma. You know, water always seeks its own level. Uh-huh. And so I was ditching class. I was smoking weed. I was, uh, ecstasy was a thing then. I was taking ecstasy. I remember I was in school and this guy came up to me. He was like, you want to buy these pills? And I was like, what are they? I thought they were mini thins or something. I bought, he was like, they're 20 bucks. I'm like, for one pill? I bought it. I took it. I didn't even know what I was taking. The best $20 you ever spent. Yeah, it was ecstasy. (laughs) My dad picked me up from high school and he was like, what is wrong with you? Your eyes are barely open. Your eyes are bloodshot. You're like, dad, I just want to tell you I love you, bro. Yeah, I'm just tired. You know, I have allergies (laughs) right now. So I was getting in a lot of trouble, and I was running running away a lot. 
Um, I did not like living with my dad. I did not like the rules that I did not have in Oklahoma. You know, I was kind of free range in Oklahoma. My mom was not a disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, She kind of let me do whatever I wanted, which I don't think is healthy either, but it was great when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of the same uh, parameters uh, growing up. My parents just let me do whatever I want, man. Yeah. There's that saying that says, uh, I feel like they gave me enough rope to hang myself. Yeah. But I also demanded the rope. Correct. I wasn't like, it wasn't really negotiable. Right. I was like, yo, I'm going to do what I want to do, what I, when I want, what I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do with who I want to do it and how I want to do it. And so I just kind of was like very independent and, I thought I was really smart. Yeah, me too. And I, I don't know if I thought I was an adult. I kind of, I kind of viewed myself age appropriately, but I thought I was like super smart. <laughs> and I was right. like 16, 17, 18. I felt that testosterone coming on, you know? Yeah. And I started to feel strong and smart and uh, powerful. Well, my mo- my mother would do stuff like ground me, like you're grounded for a week. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> and I would just do whatever I wanted anyway. She's and like, leave. you're grounded. You're like, no, I'm not. I'd leave out my window and, you know, there was no repercussions really. And, um, so my dad had those and he was strict and I did not like it. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to do my own thing anyway. And he did not like that. I was running away a lot. I was getting in trouble. So I was there about six, seven months, um, hated it. And I was, I had run away and usually when I'd run away, I'd get picked up by the police. My dad would come and get me, and I'd get in trouble, and we'd try to start it over. This time I ran away, and I was gone for a couple of weeks, and I'd talk to some of my friends up in Oklahoma, and I heard a rumor that my granddad was dying. And uh, he had cancer, and he was in the hospital, my granddad in Oklahoma. So um, I decided I needed to go see him before he died, and I stole a car and started driving up to Oklahoma from Austin at 14 years old. And uh, um, it was a stick shift. I didn't really know how to drive a stick shift, but I got it to about Waco and I needed to pull over and get gas. And I stopped at a stop sign. I couldn't really get it going again. And a cop behind me pulled me over and said, let me see your license. And I was like, I don't have one. He said, I didn't think you did because I looked like I was probably eight, you know. And so I got a, I got arrested and and put in juvie in Waco, and I was there a day or two. And my dad came to get me, and he was in. He had a one of those old school blazers that had two doors, you know, and it had a back seat. And so I went to get in the passenger side, and he said, "Get in the back." And I thought that was weird, you know, it was just me and him. But I got in the back, and then this other guy got in the back with me. And he said, hey, my name's JL. I'm from a school in Utah, and you're coming with me. I said, yeah, I don't think I am. And he said, well, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And I said, I think this is going to have to be the hard way because I'm not going. So he pulled me down, tried to restrain me, and he put handcuffs on me. And um, we were, I was driven to the airport up in Dallas, and we flew to to Utah and I wore handcuffs the whole time. He never took you out of handcuffs. Uh-uh. I th- and I was looking for ways to run. I mean, it was probably smart of him. I was 14. 
And they let you go through, well, was this before 9-11? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was in 1993 or 4 or Okay, so like getting through security wasn't that big a it deal. It wasn't that big they a deal. They just rolled you on there in handcuffs. Well, and I didn't think I could get away, but I, so finally I resigned to the fact, well, I'll get to this school in then Utah, I'll then I'll run away. Yeah. And so this school was in the middle of Utah, in the middle of nowhere. It was a, a kind of ranch survival school. Yeah, yeah. Those were popular in the day. They were. Paris Hilton went to those, and a lot of other people did. Correct. And um, so this one, uh, I get there, and I'm placed on level one or whatever the levels were. I don't even really remember, but I did not have many rights. And if you talk back to the staff, they'd restrain you. Uh, there was fights every day with the other kids. And so it was pretty brutal. Um, so within a, a week or two, I figured out I could run. I knew West 30 miles over the mountains was the nearest town and it was on an interstate. So I could hitchhike on a, from a trucker from there. So I decided I'm going to make a run for it with another kid and they were on us pretty quick and it was at nighttime so I hid in these bushes and I pulled dirt over me with just my face showing and they drove around for hours looking for us. And finally they found us and the guy said they saw the shine of my eyes because I was looking at the lights, uh-huh. looking at me, you know? Yeah. And so I was put in uh, isolation from that point. And so I was put in the middle of a field. They drew a square in the dirt, not much bigger than this table probably eight by eight and uh, I had a little fire and a bag of rice and a gallon of water and a coffee can and a sleeping bag and a tarp and that's all I had and I was there for a couple weeks and uh, so I I, at that point in the couple weeks I said okay well I'm gonna have to do what I have to do to get through this I'm not gonna be able to run and so I was there 10 months before I got out and It was a. Were you talking to your mom and dad? Were they calling you? Were you having phone calls? I was allowed to talk to him after I got to the next level, which was a couple months later. And uh, they were on the phone. The staff was on the phone with me as I was on the phone with my parents. So if I said something I wasn't supposed to say, like they're mean to me here, they would hang up the phone, you know? (laughs) And. it was it was a pretty looking back it was a pretty brutal experience i wouldn't send my kids to it i think i don't have resentment towards my parents i think they were doing whatever they could do or thought they should do to save my life you know i think i was in a a bad spot and that was the popular thing to do back then that was the popular thing to do at that time and i've seen a lot of 60 minutes in 20 2020 uh, which are television news programs uh, exposés on uh, those types of places um, survival places where they send troubled teens to do that kind of stuff and a, a lot of it they, they're not allowed to do that kind of stuff anymore no but it probably did help some people did i'm it, sure it did. did it help you at all uh, it helped me learn how to hide it better, you know, hide what better, hide what I was doing better not, <laughs> not just have a, I don't give a shit attitude. Yeah. 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 Um, learn how to play the game a little better. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like getting out of there? I mean, did you, did you level up and level out or no? So I got out. Well, I thought I was going to, but I had no type of program or they didn't say you're addict or alcoholic or anything. They yeah. just said, you're a bad kid. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you need to act better. And so I was coming back after 10 months and I went to school when I was there too. So I stayed on grade level. And, uh, when I was coming back, I was going 
my dad had moved to another area. I thought geography would fix me. So I'd start a new school down in Austin and uh, they were going to make me repeat the grade um, because I hadn't taken Texas history. Uh-huh. So my dad got upset about that. So I went to boarding school in Arizona. And so I finished my high school and boarding school in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah. And uh, I'd fly out there at the beginning of the year. I'd fly home for Thanksgiving, fly home for Christmas, fly home for spring break and the summers. What did you think about that experience? Uh, That was a lot better. Um, It was co-ed. It, you know, I guess it was for troubled kids or you wouldn't be sent to boarding school. But it was from kids from all over the country. And it was an international boarding school. So I think there was 14 different countries that were represented there. Mm-hmm. And we were allowed to smoke cigarettes there. And um, so we didn't have a bell uh, in between classes. We'd just go to the smoking area, smoke a cigarette. That was five minutes we needed to go to the next class. Yeah. And uh, it was easier to get drugs and alcohol there. But they did pee test and they did breathalyze. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you drank and they caught you on the breathalyzer, then you get work detail and you go have to clean the desert for a while. They tell your parents, um, the headmaster, uh, knew how strict my dad was and knew if I got caught doing that stuff, he'd pull me out and send me back to Utah. So he didn't tell them most of the time. Yeah. And he told me that, you know, and I think he didn't want to lose the next year's tuition. You know? Yeah, he's like, this kid's a paycheck right here. We yeah, here. but it was co-ed, so we be- I became friends with the RAs that would watch us at night. We'd sneak up to the girls' dorms, and, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of... What did you do up there, just talk to them and stuff? Yeah, just talk to them. Good, get them uh, straightened out. Yeah, yeah, just make sure they're <laughs> make living sure they're a healthy life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Taking their vitamins. That's right. <laughs> and uh, so... Since I've been in recovery, I've been able to process a lot of that stuff. Yeah, you have and, to. And, uh, yeah, absolutely have to. I didn't realize a lot of that was affecting me as much as it was, honestly. And what were some of the ways it was affecting you? Well, I think, obviously, I have huge abandonment issues because of yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Even though I, I didn't want to live under my parents' roof. Because, and follow their rules. Right. You still have that yeah, 100%. subconscious abandonment issue, right? Yeah, 100%. and uh, there's no way around it at that point. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my sisters recently, and both of them are trying to do a lot of inner work, also. Mm-hmm. And my younger sister said, "You know what? You used to kind of act out your emotions and talk about your emotions, and you were sent away for that. And so, what it taught me was, I can't do that, or I'm going to be sent away too." And I said, well, that taught me that also, you know. And so I've had to, you know, I started doing another program recently, not just AA. Uh, I guess we can talk about uh, ACA, Adult adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Families. Okay, I didn't know that. And It's a a 12-step based It is 12-step based. Okay. But what it really is, and I recognize some of the issues, are the patterns of my life. The patterns of my life and relationships are that I have these abandonment issues, so I don't, I'm scared the person's going to leave me, right? Those are the underlying abandonment issues. I do whatever I can to not make that happen, and I give up my own needs. I don't even recognize I have needs. I give up uh, my own life, and I make my world small just to appease their world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recognize that, so I'm trying to heal those things and trying to move past those things 
so those patterns aren't repeated. That's super interesting. And that's what recovery is all about. It's like, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not into recovery yet, get excited about it because those are some of the things that you're going to get to start digging into your own past and uncover some things about yourself and discover some new things about yourself and then figure out, well, what am I going to do about that? Yeah. How how am I going to process that? And more importantly than all that stuff I just said in the last 60 seconds, the next most important thing, or maybe the most important thing is what am I going to do about it? Right. And how am I going to move forward into 2023? And how am I going to conduct myself in 2024? And and what's my life going to look like in 2025? And the answer to that question is, yeah, you know what? You're going to find out one day at a time. Yeah. You're going to find out what kind of person you are in 2024, which is a year from now. One day at a time, the secret will be revealed and you can move in a healthy direction through uh, all different avenues. There's so many ways to get healthy these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not all under the umbrella of 12-step recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous, even though I'm a big fan and a big supporter of everything that's under the recovery umbrella of of the 12-step programs. There's so much available to us today as far as recovery, uh, going outside of the scope of that area to move forward in a healthy way. Some of the things I've done in my own personal life that are outside. Well, maybe they're not outside the umbrella and scope of AA, but I have gone outside and, 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 and paid for, uh, to the tune of about 125 to $150 per hour is one-on-one counseling. Yep. Me too. Where I go into a counselor, which I don't like on two levels. One, I'm cheap. I ain't trying to pay somebody $150 an hour to talk to me. And by the way, it's not an hour. It's 50 minutes. Sure. Yeah. It's not an hour for 150. It's 50 minutes right. for 150. I found that people that are in counseling that are smarter than me, they can listen to me and they can delineate what is going on with me. And then we kind of try to figure out, well, why Mike? Right. Why do you feel that way about sex? Right. Why Mike? Why do you feel that way about money? Right. Why Mike? Why do you feel that way about um, marriage Mm -hmm. or, you know, geographically locating to a different area? I mean, what's your deal with that? And then I'm like, Oh shit. That's something I came up with when I was 17 years old. And I was super freaked out because the girl that I air quotes loved who thought thought I was going to be with forever, uh, broke up with me and got with another dude who was one year older than me. I was a junior in high school and he was a senior and she left me to get with that senior. But then I like picked up this deal at 17 years old about, I want to act this way. I'm going to do this way. I'm going to treat girls this way. I'm going to talk to girls this way. And then I just carried that into adulthood. Yep. And then I'm like, well, shit, now I'm 36 and it doesn't work. Right. Or now I'm 46 and I realize that is uh, something that a dumbass 17 year old kid would come up with. But here I am in a 37 or a 47 year old man's body rolling with some dumbass thing I came up with when I was 17. Right. And I'm able to figure those things out. And those are the kind of things that set me free. Absolutely. They set me free. Well, what I recognized was no matter what, I, I think almost a hundred percent of us have some type of trauma or blueprint laid for us as a as a young person 100 percent, and that dictates how we act as an adult you know it dictates the patterns that we uh, move through life with and some of it are survival skills or some of it are that's what worked then Uh but maybe it doesn't work now for little girls it could be like food yeah, absolutely. You know, there could be, could be a little nine-year-old girl who had a really bad day one day, and her dad took her to the gas station, and, and she got six white powdered donuts at the gas station, and they made her feel good. That's right. So all of a sudden, fast forward 30 years later, and she's 350 pounds because she eats for comfort. That's right. And then she has to figure out as an adult, well, shit, now I'm 300 pounds. Yeah. And it all goes back to when I was a little girl, and my dad bought me those powdered donuts at that gas station one day, and they made me feel better. 
And then you have to figure out, what am I going to do about it? Yeah. Like, am I going to get type 2 diabetes and die? Right. And get fatter and fatter and fatter? Or am I going to, like, figure out what's going on and that, 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 that me overeating is a trauma response to mm-hmm. something that a little girl came up with in the middle of a gas station parking lot 30 years ago? Well, not all uh, things that happen that laid our blueprints down are bad, right? Some of it are just what worked then, and they don't work today as an adult. So I recognize patterns in my life, and I only recognize patterns through pain, unfortunately. I wish it was easier than that for me, but it is not. A little bit more esoteric and be like, I'd like to refine my personality. That's right. So once I get in some pain, you know, and especially after I got into recovery, now what I do is I say, okay, I'm in this pain. How did I get here? And I start evaluating and I start trying to, in my mind or on paper, lay out what's going, what's really going on. And then once I can recognize the and talk with others and work with others, once I can recognize the patterns, I can recognize, uh, I can start trying to find the tools to deal with those patterns. And AA does a lot for me, but AA um, doesn't do enough for me. I need some other tools as well. AA does great things for my life and my um, sobriety and all that. But I have some other types of trauma and some other types of uh, issues that, that just happened to me. It doesn't make me a bad person. Doesn't make me uh, act bad in today's world, but it it causes me to have these patterns that's going to constantly uh, get me in situations to get myself hurt. You know, hey, uh, paint a picture for our <clears throat> listeners and tell us a little bit about what it feels like to get on the other side of some of those issues and to be set free and have a new. Just a new way of living and thinking and feeling about certain things. Can you give us, I mean, you don't have to give us specific examples if you don't want to, but let the listeners know what it feels like to do the work. Well, first of all, identify the problem. Second of all, do the work. And then third of all, to get free. Talk about the getting free side. What is that like? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm still working through abandonment issues, obviously. I'll probably work through those the rest of my life. <clears throat> I think I've gotten a little better at it. Um, but the biggest thing for me is the sobriety and getting through the other side of that. But tell us about that. What does it feel like to be set free of drinking and drugging? Um, it's a, something I never thought was possible before, you know. And honestly, I'd never really considered myself. You can hear my story and realize I was probably an alcoholic before I took my first drink. For whatever reason, um, it manifested that way in me, you know. Not too many social nine-year-old drinkers, you know. So, I once I recognized I was an alcoholic, and I realized that, and I got through the other side of it, and now I, I don't ever think about drugs or alcohol as an option to go to. Not saying occasionally it doesn't cross my mind where a beer might sound like a good idea, yeah, but... I don't, I don't rely on that as my crutch anymore. And it's a, it's a freedom that I never thought was possible before. I I didn't even know that I was enslaved to it before, you know? So it's a, so if you don't know you're enslaved to it, you can't understand the freedom on the other side of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You well, yeah, totally. I mean, we all experience, we all walk different roads and have different experiences, but as far as being placed in a position of neutrality, I feel the same way that you feel. And I want to echo what you just said, like 45 seconds ago, that when I roll through life now and I come upon situations that are challenging or super exciting or boring or just mundane, 
alcohol and drugs are not part of the equation anymore, really, that my that my mind clicks through. Correct. It's not it's not anywhere in the top one hundred things that I think about in conjunction to um I just found out that my transmission is bad on my car. That's four thousand dollars. I don't I don't think well now I need to drink. Right. Well now I need to go smoke a joint. It's not that. It's like, well now I need to figure out like what am I going to do about that transmission being messed up? Well, and I would say even before the, I had some type of program, if I had the $4,000 transmission issue, it would eat my lunch. You know, I would be all spun up about it. I would freak out about it. I wouldn't know what I was going to do. My world would be turning upside down. I don't have $4,000 right. for a transmission. And today I, I look at every life challenge that comes my way as an opportunity to jump into spirituality and grow, you know, and you either become a better man stronger afterwards or you let it destroy you. And so, like I said before, I only grow through some pain and I wish that wasn't the case. I I'm kind of lazy by nature. You know, when things are going good, I don't think I have to dive into stuff. So when things go bad, I dive into stuff and I become a much better person after. So, now I can look at um, adversity as an opportunity to become a better person. That's a huge change of attitude that I've ever had in my life that I didn't know existed either, you know? And that's how an adult reacts to things. Yeah. Or so, so a healthy adult. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, and we, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we should be doing yeah, anyway. Yeah. It right? just takes... Took me a long time to get I there. I needed to be taught those things. Yeah, I right. sh- a few people, yeah, I had to be shown that. I had to get into recovery to grow up for myself. Correct. So I want to ask the listeners to help me out on something. For the last year, I've been trying to research the phrase and the term. Uh, and here it comes. It's called uh, pain is the touchstone to all spiritual growth. So I'm trying to research the origins of where that comes from. For the, So for the last year, the only person that I can find is Bill Wilson, the person who uh, co-founded Alcoholics Anonymous with Dr. Bob Smith. He was the one that that, that uh, coined that term, pain is the touchstone to all spiritual growth. I can't find anywhere else, and I'm sure it's probably mentioned in the Bible, maybe the Oxford group here and there. But if you know the origin of that uh, colloquialism, please email me at mike at com. That's mike at com, and help me figure out where that came from. I don't know why that's important to me, but I, it's it's a truism in my life that pain seems to be the touchstone to all spiritual growth. And Chris just alluded to it and hit on that when he was telling his story. It's the blessing of a skin knee, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you fall down and you skin your knee, you realize you don't like that and you try very hard not to skin your knee again. Yeah, so you do things and better things shoes, in. go yeah. slower, wear jeans. That's right. Yeah. You have to fall down to know which way is up, right? That's true. That's true. I want to I want to take a quick break and read some announcements for the group that's listening today. Please visit our show website at SoberShares.com uh, to communicate with me directly via email. I would love to hear from you. You can also leave us a show review or access our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter. A financial gift may be made by clicking the donate button on our website at SoberShares.com. This donation process is simple, and your generosity will allow us to continue to bring content to you advertisement-free. Thank you for your consideration. I would like to increase the listener feedback portion of the show by reading your personal emails of your experiences with sobriety, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 Steps, or listening to Sober Shares 
on the next episode. So please email me directly at mike at sobershares.com. And now I would like to mention a few listeners by name who recently made a financial gift to move the show forward. Thank you to Heather L., Andrew L., Cassie P., Helen S., Lori J., Damon D., Barbara R., and Red S. And now let's turn our attention back to our guest. Chris, let's finish paying a picture of your high school years. Tell me about how high school finished out, your drinking and drugging, how that progressed, and what you did after you got out of high school. So in high school, like I said, we were in boarding school, and it wasn't a lockdown school, so we were able to get drugs and stuff there and able to drink. Um, we were P-tested. We learned how to pass P-tests. How do you pass a P-test? Um... Well, you can fill up a visine bottle of bleach and put it in your pocket. And when you're taking the pee test, you squirt a little in the pee test. How much is a little? How many drops? Yeah, a few. Like or three? you can dip your fingers in bleach and let it dry, then pee on your fingers. Or And that gives a negative result or just no result? Or no result, correct. Okay. Or you can drink a <laughs> gallon of water the night before if you're getting it and dilute your pee down. And I've seen like in the that. head shops and the smoke shops, they sell kits that you can take to right. beat pee tests and stuff. So we did that, um, but I would get caught some. And the headmaster, like I said, knew not to tell my dad um, or I'd be sent back to Utah. So I kind of felt like even if I was caught, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and if I ever did get in trouble or get detention and I, my parents were told about that, that was before the days of cell phones. So I'd call my parents once a week on a pay phone there at the school. And if they started yelling at me, I'd just hang up the phone, you know? And, uh, my sister said they were always very jealous of me that I kind of had my own life going on. Um, so that was high school. I got through high school. Uh, I did not. Uh, think much about college afterwards I I uh, what you know not living at home there was not like your parents over you saying hey you need to start looking at colleges you need to start applying so I didn't have any of that so my older sister uh, was in school down in San Marcos at Southwest Texas State Texas State today and I went to visit her when I was home for spring break or something. And I was like, man, this looks cool. I'll just come here, you know. And so I applied just to that school. I got into just that school. And I was accepted uh, to it and getting ready to start. And right before I was getting ready to start, I realized I wasn't ready to go. So I moved up to Oregon. I took a bus up there. I had a, a high school buddy that was from Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. And I was there, and I just partied the whole time. I mean, I was there a couple months, and I realized I cannot do this. So, What year was that? That was in 97. That was right when grunge was hitting hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a fun time. Fun time to be in the Northwest. I bet. What were some of the big bands out there? Pearl Jam and Soundgarden? And Nirvana and all that <laughs> stuff. You know? Well, I guess uh, Kurt Cobain had passed away in the mid-'90s by that point. But it was still a great scene. And uh, it was just, I just partied hard. And, you didn't smoke any weed up there, did you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and mushrooms and all the stuff, you oh know. My God. Does it rain up there a ton? They said it does. It did. And I was only there a couple months, you know. And uh, I realized this, is, this was the wrong move. <laughs> so 
my grandmother had a place in Crested Butte, Colorado, and that was a place that we always, I always grew up going. That was a second home to me. My parents, uh, when they were married, my dad built a house up there. My grandparents bought that house in the late 50s there, so before there's a ski area, so it was a second home to my whole family, you know? It's the wildflower capital of Colorado. It is. So when I was... After a couple months up there, my grandmother was by herself in Crested Butte, and so I called her and said, I'm going to come live with you for a little bit. She said, great. So I went and did that. What did you do there? That's a tiny town. Yeah, well, I had a lot of friends from growing up there, some of my best friends uh-huh. uh, that I had known my whole life. Some of them still live there. The, one of my best friends that I had known since I was an infant, he owns the hardware store in town. Wow. And so... Uh, I just hung out with my friends and I just moved the party to Crested Butte. Was it magical and fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in the growing up in the summers, we'd spend all our summers up in Crested Butte. I was on the baseball team up there, stuff like that. When was the ski resort built and who built it? It was built in, I believe, the early 70s. Okay. And uh, I do not know who built it, but since I was born it was always there i mean i learned how to ski there when i was two and a half years old are you a good skier i'm a decent skier are you excellent uh i'm okay i bet you're good i i know how to ski i bet you're good you're athletic people can't see you and they don't know you he's young he's young and he's in good shape so i bet he's a really good skier did you snowboard too no 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 no. did you do not like snowboarders uh well back when it when i was young there wasn't such thing as snowboarding you know but when it came along and then it came along i think when i was in junior high or high school and a lot of my friends from crested butte uh, went over to snowboarding and most of them came back to skiing Uh and so well i was up there for a short time usually for a week or two Mm -hmm. and i didn't want to have to learn something else yeah, And so by the time they went back, I kind of gave up on the idea that I wanted to snowboard. And so I've just always skied. I loved it, you know, and I still love it to this day. And, you know, I was in the military and I was airborne in the military and I joined a, a airborne club called Liberty Jump Team. Shout out to them. Look them up on Facebook and stuff. And what we do is we jump out of planes military style um, at you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred feet uh, static line, and we jump into air shows and we teach civilians about Army airborne history. We also jump into the uh, D-Day anniversary in France. Wow! And I have not gone over there with them yet. I just joined it a couple years ago, but I never thought I would be able to static line jump again after the military. And it also put me around a lot of vets that I didn't know I was missing that part of my life and. Uh, telling a lot of war stories and you know there's an old saying that nothing ruins a war story like an eyewitness you know so it's all just tall (laughs) tales and fun and laughing and talking trash to each other i have never heard that saying before (laughs) (laughs) so static line jumping at 1500 feet i know a little bit about skydiving because i have done some skydiving and i Mm -hmm. always pull my ripcord at like five thousand four thousand five thousand feet right that seems really low and i understand what static Uh, jumping is so explain to our listeners a little bit more about what that's like that's really low but explain to them how the parachute is automatically deployed well it's hooked up to a static line and you hook the line up to a line in the plane and so when you jump out it's pulling out your chute 
at the same time. Immediately. Immediately. Uh, you count to, you jump out, you have your hand on res- reserve, you count to four. If your chute doesn't open by four, you pull your reserve. And uh, they say if you count to nine, you hit the ground. So okay. have, you ever, have you ever had to pull your reserves? I never have. Have you ever seen anybody else have to do it? I have, and we make fun of them, you know. What would they do wrong? Uh, nothing. It's just a way to make fun of someone. Okay, I was like, they just jumped out of the plane. <laughs> so uh, usually, you know, once, and I started packing my own chute um, once I joined this team in the military. You don't do that. That's a separate job that does that. I did not know that. So you just grab a chute and hook up and go. But Okay. I packed my own, you know, when I first packed it, I was like, I don't know if I trust myself on this. And he was like, you trusted someone you didn't even know that did it before. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So once I started packing my own, I saw that the chute wants to open. It's designed to open. It actually gave me a lot more confidence in it. But you jump so low in the military because you're just a target to shoot at from the ground, right? And so you want to be on the ground as quick as possible. How long does it take to get down when you jump at 1,500 feet? A minute or so. Still a long time to get shot at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Oh, my God. And, uh, well, luckily on this Liberty Jump team, we don't get shot at. Is there a way to get down faster than 60 seconds? I mean, of course, not pull your shoe. <laughs> you hit the ground yeah. in nine seconds. No, it's just it's just kind of how it is. And Are I they mean, sh- the way to get down quicker is jump out at a lower altitude, you know? Are they square? Are they round? Are they they're steer- round? They're, are they steerable? They're semi-steerable. They're not like what you see parachutists do, where they can turn into a stadium and yeah, those are the square ones, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, rectangle, rectangle. Okay. And I've actually never skydived before. I've only static line jumped. Do you want to? I would love to, but I don't want to do it tandem, you know? Uh-huh. And uh, so I... So what would it take for you to not do it tandem? You'd well, I'm sure I'd have to do a class all day, and I'd be allowed to do it. Well, I would do it. it, but I also get to jump multiple times a year doing this, and so... I wonder if it would be different. I don't... I'm sure... The falling would be a lot more fun, you know? And oh, because you don't get a chance to fall much. You don't get a chance to fall. That's what I remember about falling uh, out of the airplane that I jumped out of. We went to 10,000 feet, I believe, or 11,000 feet. It was about 45 minutes south of Dallas. I tandem jumped with a guy, and mm-hmm. then I paid another guy $100 to uh, jump out with us with a camera on his uh, helmet. Uh-huh. So I paid the photographer $100. I paid the tandem jumping guy. I think it was 200 or 400 so I think I was in it for 500 We went up to 10,000 feet with six people in the plane, and uh, maybe seven because the photographer was seven, and the pilot was eight. So anyways, long story short... We get up there, and it's a long time to think about it because you're getting up to 10,000 feet, and these are prop planes. They're not jets, so it takes a while. And I think we kind of were circling on our way up. We were just kind of trying to stay in the same air pattern. We finally get up 10,000 feet, and um, we're sitting on our butts on the ground. He's like, it was really loud. He was really like, I mean, he was yelling, but I could still barely hear him. We had on goggles for our eyes and little see-through goggles and the mm-hmm. helmets and the and the, pair, the pants and the chute and the, the, the whole outfit and we scoot over to the to the edge and we look out and there was a little a little a little thing a little um like a little platform we could kind of stand on and then a strut a support strut that came in from the wing to the body of the airplane and we kind of held onto that strut and we had talked about it on the ground I think we were going to go on three you know uh-huh. it's like one and he, I could feel him rocking he's right. like rocking forward one rocking forward two rocking forward three and the and the and the, and the photographer was already out on the strut. He was already outside the plane. Right. And so we did it perfectly, man. He go, we go one, 
two, three. And the photographer let go about a half a second before three. He let go at two and a half. So he flew backwards with, with his back towards the planet Earth and his head and his face. And the camera shooting back up to the plane up towards the sky and got us coming out of the airplane. And then we, he said, you have to spread your body like the letter X. You know? uh -huh. So we spread our legs out real wide and our arms out real wide and kind of arched our back backwards. And he kind of put me in that position because we were tandem and he was behind me. Sure. And that slowed us down. And I think we got to, I think it was 130 miles an hour is the maximum velocity you can fall. Or maybe it's 100. Do you know what the maximum velocity? I do not. I think it was like 130 miles an hour maximum velocity that you can reach coming down, falling. <laughs> and we free fell for probably, I don't know, man, from 10,000 feet to like 4,000 feet. So 6,000 feet. And the, and the freaking guy, uh, the photographer guy, he's real good, dude. He was like flying around us. Like wow. he was flying circles around us and like going a little bit higher and going a little bit lower and getting all these different angles. I was like, that guy's good, dude. <laughs> and so we went and then uh, we pull, I think we pulled the parachute with our right hand and then our backup was in our left hand, but we didn't have to use that. And he pulled it, and as soon as he pulled it, it was wedgie time, you know, heavy wedgie time. Right. You, sure. you, you decelerate from 130 to, like, what, what? how fast are you going when you when you pull the chute? After the chute's pulled, you're going really slow then, right? Really slow. I know those round parachutes go a little faster. Like, when you hit the ground, it's, yeah. it's like jumping off uh, maybe where that fan is, so 12 feet onto the ground or so that's what it feels like it's what it feels like so you have to learn how to do a parachute landing fall and kind of roll and if you <sighs> land with your feet apart you're probably going to break an ankle because oh. um, they're trying to get you out of the air quick you know? okay God, that's super that's scarier than what we did because we came in and we were flying more horizontal we weren't coming straight down like a like a rock we were more for flying horizontal and then the dude was like, I'm going to flare the parachute right before we land. Right. And I go, okay, what does that mean? He goes, don't worry about it, but I'll tell you. <laughs> right. And he told me, and he pulled these two things down at once real hard. And I could hear the parachute kind of flare. And we kind of like swooped in and then did that and then landed. And we both kind of ran uh, about 10, 15 feet, ran out to a stop. Um, but it was gnarly and it was good. And it was something I probably only need to do one time. Have you ever seen anybody break a leg or a yeah. ankle? Yeah. God. I've seen, uh, quite a few injuries from it, especially in the military. There's some static line injuries also where you hand the static line to the jump master okay. and the line gets wrapped around someone's no. arm and it pulls their muscle kind of down to their <laughs> wrist. It pulls their bicep down to the wrist, but it's all inside their skin. It doesn't rip their skin off, so... And that's surgery time, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to reattach it. Oh, you've seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not uncommon. I mean, it's not super common, but things like that do happen. Why do they? Why does it get ripped around their arm? It just... It just... Well, and the door's open in the plane, and the line's hanging there, and it just happens to... The wind and yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's all stuff you got to be careful for. It's all stuff why you train mm -hmm. to not do that the next time. That's why you just don't go out and do it. So if you're coming more straight down in a round parachute in the military, how do you, you, if you can't flare the parachute to slow your landing down, what do you, and you're coming straight down and you can't flare it and run out the landing, what are you expected to do? Just kind of fall down? And well, so on those round parachutes, there's a panel in the back that's missing. Okay. And that gives you forward push. Okay. So you're going forward at seven knots. Okay. So you kind of turn into the wind or with the wind. And, uh -huh. So you kind of come in a little sideways. You usually don't come just straight down, but mm -hmm. what you do is you kind of roll and your feet go over your head and 
it's kind of tuck and roll. It's called the parachute landing fall. And you train doing that before you ever put on a shoot too. It's and, pretty gnarly every time. Uh, no, some are pretty light landings. Uh-huh. Some are, you know, you roll, you don't even really feel it. You jump right up. Some it takes your breath away from you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's just, you don't never know what it's going to be, but you look at the horizon, you keep your knees bent. So if you look down, you're going to reach and your knees are straight. And that gives a shock all the way up through your body. Yeah. You come in with your knees locked straight. Up, right. So like, don't do that, bro. Right. Your knees are your shock absorbers. That's right. Do you wear any extra like padding or no. hip protection or no. shoulder pads? No. Elbow pads? Do, do you wear not. gloves? No. Really? Yeah. Helmets? Wear helmets, yep. Were they like skydiving helmets or like? No, they're military helmets. So in case they shoot at you, you yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the in the on the jump team I'm on now, they're they're not bulletproof helmets, but they look like military they look helmets. Like it. Yeah, they're not as heavy, right? And nice. so, but I think going back to that question, and what do you do for fun and sobriety? I do anything and everything for fun. Mm-hmm. Before I was sober. I only did stuff that involved drinking. I'd go to bars. I'd go to parties. My fun was very limited. Now I have a lot more options and a lot more chances to have fun and chances to remember it, you know? All the stuff that I did for fun before it was drinking related. Yeah, absolutely. Like I could still go surfing, but I'd have to go surfing drunk. Could still go skiing, but we'd stop and have some beers, you know? Mm -hmm. Everything was uh, revolved around that. And uh, I didn't realize how limiting that was until I got sober. So yeah. I have a lot more fun and sobriety than I ever had before I was drinking. I thought my fun days were over, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, anything and everything. And nobody's paying us to say this. No, 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 you know no, no, no. It's like if I was listening to this and I was drinking, I was like, who's paying this dude to say <laughs> yeah. this? Avion Water Company. Yeah, yeah. We're sponsored by uh, Fritos. Right. So let's talk about, let's paint a picture of what the end of your drinking looked like. Uh, if you want to tie in some of your military experience about w- what your drinking and drugging looked like in the military, but I kind of want to get to towards the end of your drinking and then maybe a moment of clarity and how you got sober. So I'll let you take that any direction you want. Sure. The, uh, so the, well, let me get back to how I was or what happened in college where I went to college um, after that year and I just partied there. I thought I was reliving the movie Animal House. At TSU? At Texas State University. Southwest Texas there, then SWT. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, I joined a fraternity. I thought, all oh, this is great. Now I can drink every night. I didn't know that's why I thought it was great at the time. It just was fun. Right. And so after a semester of a .25 grade point average, another <laughs> semester of a .5 grade point average, and... Yeah. Um, being placed on academic probation extended and all that my my father finally called me in his office and said look this is not working you need to figure something else out I think you need to join the military or you need to go leave the family you know pretty much I can't remember what the exact words were so I was like okay I think that's a good idea I'm not doing anything so I joined the military And, uh, at the time I didn't realize it, but I was just running from my alcoholism, you know, how did you decide which branch to join? Uh, well, I had a fraternity brother that was in the Marines Mm -hmm. and, uh, he said, look, here's what you need to do. You need to join the air force Yeah, because all the girls are in the air force. Okay. If you ever wanted to pick up girls, you go to the air force base. Uh, they have the nicest dining facilities. 
Uh, you need to become a load master. You'll get a flight suit. You get to fly all over the world, go to 150 different countries. I was like, that sounds great. And this is right before September 11th. So the military was downsizing from the Clinton years. Okay. And so, and I had a couple minor possessions of alcohol and, you know, they were being a little strict about me getting in. Mm -hmm. So it was taking a while. It was taking a month or two. I was trying to figure it out. Well, my best friend in the world, his parents did the same thing to him that my parents did. And he was a party or two screwing off in college. So he went to the army and got right in. So he said, go talk to my recruiters. I went and talked to him. He's like, I'll get you in by next week. And I said, Does he get a great. referral fee for that? No, or I okay. Does, so. he a, does he get a bump for that? <laughs> no. or what? He's like, that's another dude. Yeah, he gets uh, less kitchen duty, I guess. I don't okay. know. Right. So uh, I joined the, the Army, and they got, a, got in right away. And Do you regret not waiting for the Air Force? No. I'm, okay. I'm glad with what I did. I okay. think everything happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering if you're like, damn it, I should have been a loadmaster. No, 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 no. I'm very proud of uh, the service that I did and so I went to Korea and um, we partied there and um, so the military I think delayed my surrender okay the military taught me how to drink like an adult and you know you don't do drugs in the military because you'll get kicked out I guess some people do but they pee test and all that stuff there so I wasn't willing to risk it. If you got dishonorably discharged, I was told it's worse than a felony or equal to a felony on your record. Do you think that's true? Probably. I don't. I don't know, but I don't think it looks good. You didn't you want know? to find out. Didn't want to find out. So, uh, I just yeah. There's the DD14, the discharge, uh -huh. dishonorable or regular, honor. or honorable or yeah. general, which is kind of like a yeah. dishonorable little. They bit. mess up your benefits too. I think if they you're do dishonorably discharged. They do. do. You go off shoot question. Do you go to the VA for healthcare now? Uh, well, I didn't um, until about six months ago. I got a letter from the VA saying they've uh, upped the benefits for okay. um, Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom vets. So I reapplied and I got accepted in it. Okay, my so, dad, my dad's eighty-two and he was in uh, Navy. He was a CB, and we are big fans of the VA. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of good things to say about the Veterans Administration Hospital. Before we got into the system, all I heard was bad stuff. Right, it was like bad, 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 bad. That has not been my experience. Right. I've been there lots and lots and lots with my dad, and I have nothing but love and respect and admiration for the VA healthcare system in the United States of America and everything they do for my father. So I want to give a shout out that I'm grateful for that. And I'm super um, excited to 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 just the fact that, that that he is eligible for that kind of healthcare and that yeah. they administer that kind of healthcare. So Absolutely. much love and respect to the VA. So anyways, go ahead. So uh I think the military, you know, we didn't do drugs, so I think it. everyone drank all the time, and so I fit right in, right? And I probably drank harder than some of the guys, but I, I hung out with the guys that drank hard also, and it taught me, like, do whatever you want on your off time, but show up to morning formation at 6 a.m., be presentable, be ready to run 10 miles, all that stuff. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And I would drink till 5 a.m. some nights, go run 10 miles, sweat it all out, and work the whole day, and then go do it the next night. Okay. And it taught me you can do whatever you want in your off time, but on your work time, you need to focus on your work time. And I didn't drink a lot during the week, you know. What, did they, do to what did they do to guys that, that, that didn't or couldn't do that? 
Uh, well, you'd get an Article 15, and you'd lose rank, and you'd lose a month of pay. And, Ooh, and then um, it would kick you out eventually? Eventually, you know, it's kind of hard to be kicked out. Uh, uh-huh. But eventually it would if you didn't change your ways. And they just keep punishing you more and more? Correct. And uh, it's it's hard to, especially right after 9-11, <laughs> when they were trying to grow the military, it was hard to get kicked out. Okay. Um, so anyway, I think the military delayed my surrender. Cause then when I got out of the military, I went back to college. I finished basically a full degree cause I only had one credit hour transfer from Texas state and that was in bowling, okay. um, in less than three years, you know, and I'd take 21 hours every semester and I learned I work, I'm supposed to work when I'm supposed to work. I go to every class yeah. and I drink in my off time. Yeah. And that carried over into my work life also. Since that bowling credit did transfer, how's your bowling status? It's okay. Yeah. yeah you ever hit a, a 300 game? I have not. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a maybe below average bowler. Have you ever been in a league? I have not. You, no. Do you have your own pair of shoes? I do not. Have you ever had your own ball? I have not. Okay. Just some yeah. general bowling questions for all of our Well, fans. the class was we had to go bowl two games. And then the midterm was we had to add up a bowling score, and the final was we had to add up another bowling <laughs> score. So it wasn't too hard to get a credit hour out I of I took that bowling one. in college, and I loved it. Yeah. I don't have my own shoes or ball either, but I think I should. Yeah. I feel like I deserve I would that. join a bowling league. That'd be fun. I yeah. think it would be fun, too. I think that people people gamble, I think, on bowling, like yeah. in the in the lanes and stuff. Right. Okay, side note, but yeah, we should, we should get into that. We'll chase that down after the show. So anyway, uh, after college, I went and worked uh, international, uh, a job for an international oil company. I traveled all over the world, and I learned to drink in my off time, work on my on time, and I really limited my drinking to the weekends mainly, you know? What about your drug use? Were you able to cut out the weed? Yeah, yeah, I didn't do any drugs, okay, really. Okay, cool. Um, maybe every once in a while when I was at a party with fraternity brothers and mm-hmm. some Coke would be brought out, I'd do it, you know? <laughs> but it, uh, I was never a huge weed guy after the Army because um, I just got kind of got paranoid on it. You know, mm-hmm. I thought everyone hated me. The world was out to get me. <laughs> <clears throat> I could never get back to that happy plateau okay so anyway then um a few years later i was traveling all over i got married my my wife at the time wanted to start a family my company wanted me to move to turkey she was not willing to move to turkey and uh she said you need to figure something else out so i agreed and i started my own business in uh, oil field service company with a couple other guys and we started it in uh the Fort Worth area, that's what brought me back to Dallas. Okay. And six months after we were here, the, it was natural gas out there. It took a dump. And so we moved everything out to Midland. And so I would travel, uh, to Midland on Monday and back on Fridays. And I did that for eight years. Wow. Did y'all have kids at that point? Yeah, we had kids, started a family, all that stuff. Okay. And, uh, she stayed here. I traveled out there and I was here on the weekends You'd leave Monday morning and come back Friday night? Uh-huh. Okay. Sometimes I'd leave Sunday night if I had a Monday morning meeting. Were you driving or flying? Driving. How far a drive is it from Dallas to Midland? Door to door. If I didn't stop for gas, it was five and a half hours. We were a little west of Midland. And uh, if I stopped for gas, it was six hours. Mm-hmm. So I was putting 100,000 miles a year on my car and, or on my truck. And so I was getting a new truck every year. But the company was doing very well. 
And so when I was out there, my drinking kind of progressed. I was kind of a bachelor out there. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't have a family. I had my own place. And I remember about oh four or five years before I surrendered, I was, it was 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. I was in my underwear, in my place, drinking straight vodka. And I thought to myself, someday I'm going to have to deal with this. And... But not today, but someday I'm going to have yeah, to. Yeah, it's, some pro- point. it's progressing. I could see it progressing. Yeah, I recognized it progressing, but I didn't know how to do anything about it. That's interesting that you still remember that moment of time. I do. I do. It was that uh, impactful on me, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would, it started to where, and I didn't have a boss. I was my own boss. How old know? were you when you had that little moment of clarity? Um, I was probably 35. Okay, that's pretty know, good. 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah right on. And uh, so then, you know, our marriage started falling apart, and uh, it's bound to happen when you live that kind of lifestyle. <clears throat> I think a lot of people can live that lifestyle and their marriage doesn't fall apart, but it did. And it's hard on a marriage. I it think. is hard on a marriage, especially with young kids and all that stuff. And so we decided to split up. I moved into, um, we had a lake house over in Eagle Mountain Lake at the time. I moved into there and all I was, and I wasn't going to work and my partners are getting pissed about it. And all I was doing was getting drunk every day, you know, my, that's how I dealt with things back then. And I had this huge fear of divorce because I, I swore to myself as a child, I would never let my children grow up in a divorce household because it was so impactful on me. And, uh, so my world was collapsing. Um, the only way I knew how to deal with it was increase my drinking. Wow. And so, uh, my, we started, kind of having some falling outs um, about seeing the kids. She didn't want me to see the kids. She said, I think you drink too much. I said, I'm willing to quit drinking. Uh, was that brought up as part of the divorce? I mean, there was a lot was. of other issues too. But It was, and it was, yep. Okay. And uh, justifiably, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was always kind of a happy drunk. I wasn't an angry drunk or anything, mm-hmm. and... Um, I didn't see it as much of a problem, but really when I was sober was my problem. Were you drinking on the Saturday and Sunday that you were at home? Yep. The, you did. Okay. I did. But then you were drinking when you were out in Midland too. Correct. <laughs> you were drinking so it all started, the time. It started picking up more and How more. How were and more. you able to drive there and back? Well, I didn't, I wasn't a morning drinker or anything oh, okay. and I was never physically addicted to alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't a round the clock drinker. I, I limited it till the afternoon. You know? Yeah, it's classy. Yeah, it is. I needed to Gatorade in the morning <laughs> to get my body body going again right so uh i said i'm willing to quit drinking uh all i ask is that we take alcohol out of our marriage while i work on this and i figure it out and i said i don't want you to quit forever but can we just not go to these drinking parties every weekend because that's what we would do and she said i'm unwilling to do that you know i think the marriage was over and we were just finding excuses of why it wouldn't work i I think that was the honest to god truth of it okay and uh so um, my, she had, she called my family. My family came up from Austin and gave me intervention. I said, well, if I'm affecting your, your lives this much in Dallas from my drinking, then I'll go to a treatment center. So I was sent to a treatment center in Houston. I was there a day. I was like, I shouldn't have done this. And I called my partner on the way down to Houston. He's like, do not do it. Do not go. You're not an alcoholic. 
I was like, okay, well, I've already told him I'm going to go. And so I got down there. I called him. He sent an employee to come pick me up, and I drove back to the lake house. Well, she had lawyered up at this point, and she said, I, I want to pee test him before he's allowed to see the kids. And there's an 80-hour pee test for alcohol. And so I didn't know how I was going to get around this. You know, I didn't want to get caught cheating on it. Um, so I thought, well, what can I do that doesn't come up on a pee test or anything? So I started uh, looking at huffing, and I started huffing computer duster and getting mm-hmm. real messed up on that. And it was my little loophole, I thought, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I would get real screwed up on it. And as soon as I stopped toughing it, I'd sober up and I was ready to go. So that progressed. I mean, it's all in a very short time. <clears throat> so uh, eventually I, I started dating another girl right away. Very dumb. I don't recommend doing that in a divorce. But I told her what I was doing. I told her she because she'd asked me, "Why are you messed up talking to her on the phone?" I was like, oh, "I'm huffing computer duster." So she told my family. So my family called the police to come get me and check on me, and they saw me doing it and they arrested me. So at that moment, my business partner said, "Hey, you need to go to treatment. We're going to pay for it." And I said, "Yeah, I do." You know, and I thought this would. Uh, this would be the fix to save the marriage and all that stuff. I didn't go to treatment for the right reasons, you know? And so, uh, I, I went to treatment North of Dallas and it was a, an, not an anti-AA. It was not an AA based treatment. Okay. And so my, those can work too, right? They can. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to get sober other than AA. The, absolutely. And they had a different, uh, they had a smart program. I really, <laughs> I think I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. Smart really, recovery. Yeah. I, I like the idea of a smart program. I think it is a great idea. It didn't work for me. Okay. Um, I think it works for others or it wouldn't be there, you know? So I get out of treatment. I relapse right away. I go check myself back in do another 30 days. And I get out, and I don't have any fellowship. I don't have a network. I don't have anything. So I'm just, I'm in, I rent a townhouse at this point. I'm in my townhouse by myself. I'm not going to work. My business partners and I had a falling out. I bet so. Yeah, justifiably. You weren't pulling your weight. That's right. You were falling apart. Justifiably. So I was just sitting there. I was still getting... Um, revenue or monthly income from my business, but I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. So how old were you about this point? I was, uh, 39 and 40. Okay, cool. I just like to geographic or, you know, chronologically know where we're at. Cause I think a lot of listeners can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. My life was falling apart and I got sober at 30. Well, and I wasn't, my ex wouldn't let me see the kids. Um, I, so I went a year and a half where I wasn't allowed to see or talk to the kids. Wow. During this time. And that, that was keeping me in my self-pity sorrow oh loop, you know, God. justifiably also. Yeah, super sad. It is sad. It's I'm still sad heartbroken about it, about it you know. Yeah. And so um, I, I kept relapsing. My sisters would know I was relapsing. They'd call the police. The police would come <laughs> pick me up. I'd get arrested. I got arrested nine times in this year. God, Chris, uh-huh. what are you doing? Falling I'm, apart. <laughs> I'm a determined person. I don't give up easily, you know. 
And so, did you ever? Okay, so internally, we well, you kind of knew you had that moment of clarity a few years before when you were thirty six. So about three years before you had known drinking vodka in that apartment in Midland, somebody I'm have to deal with this. So now we're fast forwarding thirty eight, thirty nine. Your mm-hmm. life's falling apart. Are you having internal thoughts about like God? I really got to quit drinking. I really got to stop. You know, well, huffing. you know, when I go to treatment, I would yeah. and I would do great in treatment i'd graduate magna cum laude from treatment i could teach the the <laughs> lesson plan in treatment you were like um, almost the assistant yeah, counselor <laughs> but i'd get out and i'd get on my own uh-huh. and an alcoholic by himself is with bad company you know yeah i remember in treatment they would talk about stinking thinking yeah stinking thinking and those those thoughts would come in and then what looking back i had to go through this process to fully surrender you know yeah. i i was not fully convinced deep down I was an alcoholic or an addict. I thought it was a problem in my life and I needed to kind of deal with it and then move on. Okay. Um, I didn't understand alcoholism at this point, even though I went to all the treatments, you know. God, it was looking bad for you on the divorce because you got arrested nine times. Oh, it was horrible. Her lawyer yeah, must have yeah. been like, we're killing him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they... <laughs> That's why they would let you divorce. see the, the kids. So That's what happened? Right. So you were in a super dark spot and then what happened? I was... And so the divorce uh, was finalized um, in November 19, and I was supposed to be able to see my, I agreed that I could see my kids once a month with a reunification counselor mm-hmm. and kind of start that process of, uh, yeah, yeah. of uh, getting back in their lives. So, and I was, I was sober but white knuckling at this point i had no program didn't even consider aa i thought AA was for weirdos you know because they weren't talking to you about that in the smart recovery no place. even my counselor was like you're not an aa guy are you i'm like no 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 <laughs> like oh good you know and so it like, kept me out of the rooms for a little bit okay but i kind of needed that to happen too because oh, yeah, yeah. i needed to really want it you, you needed know? to know for you that that wasn't a rich area to mine. Maybe right. I needed to start mining over here. If I'm told this is what I need to do, I don't do it. If Are I you need still to, that way? Uh, I'm better. But, <laughs> um, I'm better. I'm getting better. Okay, good. But uh, so anyway, um, we agreed on this reunification counselor. So the next day after the divorce, I called the counselor. She said, well, I can't see you to January. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just that busy, but yeah, I'd love to take you on. She goes, when I'm that busy, I go see this other lady. So I emailed my ex and said, hey, this lady's busy. Can we go see this other lady? And I went and saw her. She, I didn't get a response back, but I went and saw the other lady. She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to do this. And uh, my ex never um, responded, never went or anything. So I reached out to her. She said, we agreed to that one counselor. I'm not going to let you. So I didn't get, and I didn't get to see my kids for Christmas or anything. So I was very upset about that. Okay. Self-pity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the gambit, you know? And so. I would have been too. Yeah, of course. And um, so I got real upset and I started relapsing again. Okay. Around Christmas. Around Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I'm kind of keeping it together, but I'm getting pretty messed up. So by January 10th of 2020, this is my sobriety date. Okay. I'm sitting in my truck, cars running, messed up. The cops knock on my window. They pull me out. I get my second DWI this past year. And that was January of 2020? Uh Uh-huh. So that was right before the pandemic started? It was. Okay. So I'm on the way to um, the jail in the back of this cop car. 
And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why do I keep doing this? What is happening to me? Like, I, I think I'm an intelligent person. Obviously, I'm not. <laughs> but why can I not do this? You God, know? You've been in a lot of squad cars, too. Man. I have. At man. that point. I was, a free, like, I was getting frequent flyer miles, you know. They're like, God, there he is again. <laughs> right. So um, I, I thought to myself, why am I doing this? What is going on? Like, I, I know this stuff. I've been to treatment multiple times over this past year. I can't figure this out. And then it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm doing this because I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going to continue to do this the rest of my life. And uh, (laughs) sorry, I don't know why I'm tearing up thinking about this. But uh, so I walk into the jail cell and uh, I'm in there by myself. And um, you had that thought in the back of the squad car. In the back of the squad car, and okay. it was it was a mile or two to the jail. It was a little local jail before yeah. they took you. I just out want of the, the listeners to have a visual picture. So you had that moment of clarity. Can we call that your moment of yeah, clarity? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we'll call that your moment of clarity in the back of the squad car. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? And your answer to yourself, or maybe it was God's answer. To you, I don't know. It was power, God's answer to me, which is because you're an alcoholic. It's because I was an alcoholic, and okay. this is going to be the. I'm going to do this the rest of my life until oh. it kills me. You know. Unless, unless I did, unless I surrender to this thing, and I knew enough about AA through treatments that I knew it was a God thing, even though I didn't believe in God at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew I, I was out of ideas. You know, let's give it a shot. So I go into the jail cell by myself, and I just drop to my knees and I ask God to take the reins of my life and guide my way. And I felt this sense of relief that I've never felt before, you know, and it was, uh, it was God's presence is what I call it today, but it was this understanding that everything's going to be okay. I don't know how or why this happened to me, but I mean, it was my burning bush moment, you know, my white light moment. I get taken downtown and I get bailed out a couple days later and I kind of have relief this whole time I'm in jail. I'm not I'm not sad like I normally was, and I get out, I get picked up, and I go straight to an AA meeting. I go in there, and I'm crying, and I said, I think I'm actually an alcoholic, and everyone's laughing like, of course you are, you know? And uh, there was a guy in the AA meeting, he he was wearing an Army Airborne hat, and he said, uh, and I I said in the meeting, I go, are you Airborne? I was Airborne. He's like, yeah. And so after the meeting comes up and says, what? what's your number airborne? And he, I give him my number and he calls me the next morning at seven thirty in the morning. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, just laying in bed. He said, get your ass up to the meeting. We're going to a meeting. And me and him are good friends still to this day. He's on the jump team with me. You know? a shout out. What's his first name? His name's Clint. Okay. And so, uh, anyway, I, I dove in the program. I was completely sold on it. I got a sponsor right away, even though I didn't know what I was doing. And I started having this conception of, you know, why am I fighting this God thing? It's working for all these other people. And I got this thought in my head of, okay, what if this, what if I believe in God and I have a better life because of it? And uh, I was like, what's so wrong with that? And I go, what if I even die and I figure out there is no God, but I believe there was when I was alive and I've had a better life because of it? Who wins in that scenario? I do, you know, and so that uh, changed my perception of of believing in God, and so those are the first kind of hula hoops I had to jump through to open that door, to have that little spark that's turned to a much bigger God today, 
And so uh, I started working the program very hard. And this is January 20. I'm going to three meetings a day. I'm doing nothing else but going to meetings. And then the pandemic hits and meetings shut down. And uh, I think most people would get pretty, I think my family was pretty scared that I wouldn't be uh, able to keep it together in this pandemic. You know, I think a lot of people's life fell apart. I think that's when their alcoholism really got um, exposed was during the pandemic. But for me, I viewed it as thank you for shutting down the world, God. Now I can just focus on my sobriety, you know? I feel sorry for all you other people that have to have the world shut down for me, but... How did you How did you do that? How did you work on your sobriety and get it fired up during the pandemic when so many people fell off? Well, so the group I was going to was out in Grapevine, and uh, it was before I moved over here to Dallas. And um, luckily, alcoholics don't like to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them were very upset that the the group was shut down. So in the parking lot of where the group was, there was a picnic table. So we met at the picnic table every day at noon. I never missed an in-person meeting the whole pandemic. And uh, really? we, called, we called it the pan, uh, the panic table meetings, you know. <laughs> Sometimes there'd just be three of us, but we'd have a meeting. Were you guys masked up? Uh, were we what? Were you masked up? No, were you wearing no, no, no. masks? Six no, feet we apart? were standing. We were standing apart from each other. We had apart. a couple people drive by us and take pictures of us, oh, saying I'm they're sure calling they the police. Did. I'm sure they did. The police even stopped by one time. I'm and, sure they did. And they said, "Hey, we, you're doing fine. We don't care." You know? Wow. And, I, I just don't know if the people that are listening to this podcast in 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years from now can really comprehend what it was like. The yeah, pandemic. it was crazy. It was crazy for us. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of the reasons I'm making this podcast and I'm super glad you're here today and making these show is because I want to create a audio trove document treasure chest of, I want to do at least two to 300 of these interviews. You're number 80. Oh, nice. So I want to do two to 300, maybe 500 of these. Yeah. And the reason I want to do that is so in 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years from now, when you and I are gone, mm-hmm. people will be able to listen back and find sober shares and be like, what were they talking about in Alcoholics Anonymous in the first hundred years of its existence? Right. And and one of the things that happened to Alcoholics Anonymous during the first hundred years of our existence was the pandemic. Yeah. And it was a big, big deal. Just to let you guys know that are listening in a couple hundred years, like it shut the world down. Everybody went to their house and got scared and hung out. They closed all the businesses. They pretty much closed everything unless it was essential. The grocery stores remained open. The liquor stores. <laughs> the liquor stores. But not the AA stores. Yeah, but know, they yeah. closed down all the, well, sounds like except your group. Well, we were not authorized. authorized to, yeah, to be it was just that. a couple of us that did. Yeah, you were just doing it. But uh, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy time when it really cranked up worldwide and people were like, what's going on now? Like right. I heard about a couple people were sick on cruise ships. Right. And I heard a little bit, something about a wet market in, in, in like China, but like, what do you, it's in America now. Right. Like, like, I don't understand like what you mean. And they're like, yeah, what we mean is it's an airborne illness. And I started to hear things that I'd never heard before, of before. Like I remember my uh, sister-in-law, um, Sandra, shout out to Sandra. I, I called her during the first week of the pandemic, and I was like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I don't know. We just went to the grocery store, and there's no more toilet paper. Yeah, the and toilet there, paper. And there's no more, there are no more paper towels. There's no more Kleenex. All the flour's gone. People, you know, people, everything's gone. The, the, the grocery stores are empty. I was like, really? And she's like, yeah. And, and I was like, well, what are you doing? She's like, we're just at home. We're social distancing. And I was like, 
I'd never heard that before. I go, yeah. I go, you're social distancing. I go, what does that mean? And she's like, we're staying six feet apart from everybody because we're hearing it's a, a, an airborne illness and um, they're, they're trying to flatten the curve of the infection out. And um, they think if we all do it, like, it'll, like in two weeks, like, like in two weeks we can, we can flatten the curve and it'll take like two weeks and it'll be over. And I was like, oh, what? Right. I was like, two weeks? I was like, that's a long time. That is a long time. And then come to find out, too. Months and it months. It was months and months, and then it stretched into years, and then everything just went crazy. Um, but, yeah, for me, I stayed in the middle of the pocket of recovery, too. I started mm-hmm. to do things like Zoom meetings, yep. which are those video conference-style meetings. They closed down Aquarius, which was my home group at the time. They closed yep. down the Preston group, and they closed down all these different groups, and it was – it was a really gnarly time. I want to sl- uh, slide back about 16 minutes ago when you were talking about, uh, you said um, the um, prayer that you said. You had the moment of clarity in the back of the squad car. They transitioned you into the jail cell. Then you got down on your knees and you said that prayer. You had that white light moment. moment. My question to you, and this is very important to me to know, were you inebriated or intoxicated when you said that prayer? Uh, no, I was huffing computer duster at the is time. Is that what it was? Yeah, so I had sobered up at that point. Is that what they got you on your DUI uh-huh. on? Is that? DWI, driving while intoxicated. Off yeah. of the huffing of the stuff. Uh-huh. Okay, so they pulled up and you had the duster in your hand yeah. and you were doing all that. Okay, right. cool. But it had, you think it had, well, I was about to say, do you think it had worn off by the time that you were in there? Because it wears off quickly? or is it, it does. I mean, even though you're wobbly still. Wobbly and all that stuff. You're just like, What? Yeah. So what do you think about now? How long have you been sober now? How many how long would you say you've been sober? It will be four years this next January. Okay, so you're coming you're creeping up on four years. I am. So now you're clear minded. It's been a long time since you've had any printer cleaner or alcohol or anything like that. Looking back, honestly, what do you think about the fact that you you got there and that you were doing cleaning, printer cleaning, duster, and huffing, all this stuff? You've been sober almost four years now. What do you think about that, dude? What do you think about that? Well, I think it shows the power of uh, addiction, you know, and what you are willing to do to get messed up in your mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought alcohol was off the table because if I got caught doing that, my kids were gone. Yeah. It didn't even cross my mind that I thought... That other stuff was my loophole. Didn't mm-hmm. even cross my mind. I could get caught, and that looks probably worse, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, and the brain damage, too. Were, were you worried about all that? Like, Well, you know, I, th- I want to also say at this point, I was at such lows that I was... I didn't care if I lived or died. Okay. You know? And uh, actually, I kind of preferred that I died. Were you actively contemplating ideologically suicide? Absolutely. You were thinking about I, I did not have the guts to pull out a gun and put it to my head. Mm-hmm. I also have a cousin um, where his father, I guess he's my uncle, but it was by marriage. His father committed suicide and he was very angry at him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I remembered that and uh, I didn't want my kids to have to live through that. So I thought also mm-hmm. that if the computer duster could kill me it would look like i died by addiction and not by suicide yeah yeah and uh thought to the fact that the insurance if you had life insurance would pay out or not pay out did you think about well the life insurance paid out suicide anyway the one oh they did yeah yeah but that's not i was worried about what my kids would think about me and Mm -hmm. all that stuff it looked like i died by a disease as opposed to i died by i knew enough about the disease of addiction through Mm -hmm. treatments i've been through yeah um, that maybe they wouldn't hate me as bad, you yeah. know, and, uh, very, 
very dark, weird thoughts that you think towards the end of your yeah. uh, your days of using and yeah, drinking. Your you know? brain is spiraling at that point. Yeah, you're grasping onto anything. But I was hoping that I wouldn't wake up. I was hoping that I would take one huff and that would be the last one also, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad that didn't happen. But um it's uh, with the moment I had that moment of clarity in the back of the cop car, um, that went away for me too. I wanted to live again. Okay. I wanted to get healthy again. Did you ever, uh, this is a weird thought. Did you ever, um, it's kind of a cool thought. I don't know if you ever did it or not. Did you ever find that police officer again and tell him that you've been sober almost four years and that your moment of clarity happened in the back of his squad car? I'm sure you could find that dude's name out. I'm sure I could too. And now I haven't had that thought until just now either. And I think that's a great idea. Maybe honestly. you should... Uh, you don't have to say the name of the city of the police department. Yeah. But if I were you, you don't have to do anything I say. Yeah, yeah. But if I were you, I would think about, well, shit, there's probably documentation. It's probably like Sergeant Bowen or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And be like, I wonder if he still works in Grand Prairie. I wonder if he still works in Mesquite. And no, then, I think that's a great idea. And then cruise over there and be yeah. like, hey, man, my name's Chris. I don't know if you remember me or not, but I've been sober four years and I had what I'm going to say, air quotes, a moment of clarity in the back of your squad car. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that. And I want to tell you that I appreciate you being out here on the police force and doing what you're doing. And even though you're helping people at the lowest point of their lives or close to the lowest point of their lives, which I was definitely there mm-hmm. on, uh, was it January 10th? Yeah, it was January 10th. Yeah, January 10th of yeah. 2000. That, uh, 2020. Yeah, 2020. Just tell them, just be like, hey, Sergeant, I just wanted to let you know that I'm sober and that I had a moment of clarity. And you were the closest human to me when that happened. And I was in the yeah. back of your squad car. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea, yeah. honestly. If he's I'd, still in the forest. and st- yeah. Was he an older dude or a younger dude? Uh, he was around my age. Okay, know? so he's probably still rocking it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's probably I would still think rocking. so. Anyways, I thought that might be fun. Um, so le- that guy, did you say you're, you're, uh, the, the airborne guy that was working with you in the beginning, you say his name was Clint, is that uh-huh. what you said? Is, did he become your AA sponsor? No, he didn't. He got sober about three months before that. Okay, he so just became my AA uh, uh, buddy, you know, and yeah, we yeah. really, stra- all of us that were doing those panic table meetings mm-hmm. really got each other through that. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. And we kind of dove into each other. And um, I got a sponsor right away. He's an older guy. Yeah. And uh, I realized real quick, I probably needed someone a little younger. And okay. um, Was he in his 70s or something? Yeah, maybe 80s. And oh, okay. We just had some different experiences. and <laughs> You start talking to him about the stuff <clears throat> in the printer duster, and he's like, what? What is that? <laughs> yeah, like, right. So about? anyway, I, I met this guy that had sponsored some other guys that we'd go to breakfast before the Sunday men's meeting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, um, and I just was looking for a temporary sponsor in the beginning anyway. And I said, how about you sponsor me? And I, he said, yeah, that'd be great. Let's start working together. And a couple of weeks later, the pandemic happened yeah. and he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him. That's what I'm saying. Dog. Yeah, I know. Have you started to sponsor anybody yet? Do you have I have. Any- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How's that working out? Uh, it's, you know, I sponsor about half of them. Uh, it was a joke I heard in a speaker meeting the other day, you know, half the people I do sponsor aren't really doing the program. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple guys that are really, really doing it. It's really fun to see the lights come on. Mm-hmm. I'd say when I first, uh, started sponsoring, it was about a year or so into my program. Someone asked me, 
And I said yes, and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was scary. It was scary. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we went in this little area, and we were talking, and he was struggling with a higher power, and I was debating God with him, which I wouldn't do to this day, you know. But (laughs) I had to learn some ways not to do it um, at this point. But sponsorship is a very important thing, and um, I really, it really helps me a lot when I talk to people about this because it cements the ideas in my head too, you know? Right. And uh, I, I've also learned the hard way that we're not professional therapists. No. I uh, cannot help people uh, on things that I have not been through because I don't have that experience. It's very important to know that, yeah. Yep. And uh, sometimes you can get out over your skis about that some, especially when you're mm-hmm. first starting out because you're trying to help them with everything. You, you have the right <laughs> motives for it, you know? That happened to me early in sobriety when I sponsored a guy that had rage issues. Uh-huh. And I've never had rage issues. I've never seen red. I've right. never... I've never wanted to pull somebody out of a car and murder them in a parking lot. Right. I've never... And so I'm talking to this guy about it and I eventually... Not eventually, but very quickly pulled myself up by the collar and said, Michael, stop talking. Yeah. I said, Michael, stop talking. You're theorizing. You don't know what you're, 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 you're blowing smoke. Right. You're not, you don't have any experience with this. Right. And, uh, I said, you know what? I said, hold on. I don't have a lot of experience. And by a lot of experience, I mean any experience with what you're talking about, but I know a guy who does. Yeah. And so if you would just give me a day or so, I'm going to. You know, let's let's put this on pause for a minute. If you can, if you are in a place where we can put this on pause, let me go and 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 talk to my uh, rich resources and and see what I can do. And uh, so, anyways, I went and talked to my boy who had 17 years sober. He was in Vietnam. He was a veteran of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I said, dude, I'm sponsoring this guy. He's talking about rage, and I've heard you talk about rage in meetings, and I know that it was a real thing for you, and that you recovered from it. And so I was like, would you be willing to meet with him? He goes, absolutely. So I called my boy. I said, hey, we're going to meet. And then I called this other guy in. And there was three of us. And we met at the Aquarius group. And it was a three-hour discussion. I said really nothing other than, hey, this X, this is Y, Y, this is X. Introduce them. Mm-hmm. Keep it anonymous. And they had a three-hour discussion about rage. Awesome. And I sat there and listened. And it was pretty much, out of the last 23 years I've been sober, I would say it's one of the top 60 coolest conversations I've been a part of or heard in the last 23 years. Yeah. And I was gleaning information out of what they were talking about, even though I didn't understand the rage part of it, but I understood the recovery part of it. And I was able to pull things out of their discussion that I deeply planted uh, seeds in my own sobriety, mostly in reference to how he used prayer and meditation to overcome the rage. Right. So have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober and how have you dealt with that? I have. This past year has probably been one of my tougher years in sobriety. You know, a lot of people have passed away, um, loss of uh, big life changes, you know, lost the relationship, all that stuff. And I was in, uh, I think the last spring through summer, I was in a pretty like stuck state. I had some business failures. Um, so I felt like a failure internally. And, um, I was, I was depressed and I didn't even realize I was depressed mm-hmm. because I was still going to meetings. I was kind of sponsoring guys, maybe not working real hard with them. I wasn't doing much service work, but I was checking the boxes, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but my depression felt 10 times better than before when I was drinking and using and I was feeling like total shit, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it was hard to recognize my, my pain threshold had lowered, but um, I still felt a lot better than I did before. Yeah. So then I, you know, 
some life events happened and it made me really evaluate it. And I was like, man, I've been depressed the past couple of months and I can see it in hindsight. I can't see it when I'm in, it. I'm trying to get better at that. Yeah. And so what did I do is I called my sponsor and I threw myself into the program. I went and did service work immediately. I went and fed the homeless. I went, uh, took meetings to union gospel mission. I went, um, to, uh, detox and took a meeting, you know, I, I went to more meetings. I changed up my meetings. And what was the, what was the result of all those actions? Um, the result was I immediately felt better about myself and, uh, it, it got me out of my own way, you know? Yeah. And when you feel better about yourself, then I picked up some more sponsees. People want what you have, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I also, at that time, right in that moment, too, I had, I had lost uh, a few, maybe five, ten pounds pretty quickly. Yeah. And I felt immediately better physically. Mm-hmm. So then it had me evaluate, well, I got I to gotta evaluate my diet and my exercise program, too, and my weight program, too. Mm-hmm. So I got back into that, and I dove into that, and I changed up my diet, and I'm eating healthier. And guess what? I feel better. Isn't that weird? It's <laughs> <is> completely crazy. <laughs> yeah, sodas aren't a part of my diet anymore, and I feel better, you know? So that has to be included in my program also. What else did you do with your food besides cutting out sodas? Well, you know, I, I decided I'm going to cut some weight, so I, I did a calorie uh, reduction on my food. But as you're doing that, and you're watching the calories, you just mm. tend to eat better anyway, right? Yeah. And you can have one Twinkie for your daily calories, or you can have a salad and veggies and a bowl of rice, and you know, and you're you can eat a lot more. So it, you just tend to eat a little better anyway. Yeah. And it just had me uh, uh, evaluate all that stuff. That being said, too, like I want to be an example to my children, you know, and not let them just think you can have root beer and ice cream for every meal. And so as I do that, that rubs off on them a little bit too, you know, and we tend to, when I have dinner with them on Tuesday evenings, we tend to pick nicer places to go Yeah, or better food places to go. Not, not the hamburger places every time. I feel, I want to talk about self-discipline for a Uh minute. I want to talk about self-discipline for a minute. And I think it's important but then also, if you wanted to argue against me, you could be like, well, Michael, self-discipline's not that important. It's, it's God-disciplined. It's, it's allowing God to discipline us in the simple mm-hmm. way that we've outlined here because alcoholics are undisciplined. Sure. And so I, I want to try to dig into that. I want to swim in that pool for a minute. So I want to try to untangle that a little bit. You were in the military. And so mm-hmm. my, I guess my question is, if you were in the military and we're going to talk about self-discipline, do you think that being in the military helped you with your self-discipline or was that there before you went into the military? You know, I, I don't know. In the military, I wasn't self-disciplined. Okay. I just did what I was told, <laughs> you know, I didn't self okay. say we need to well, get up and run 10 miles. But they kicked your ass. I think you would. I don't of know. Course. I wasn't in the military. So I, mean, I guess you were told what to do. You're told what it's to discipline. do. It is discipline. But, di- but did, it, did it translate at all into self-discipline or not really? Uh, I would say more lately it has, I would say this about myself and I've always been this when I commit to something, I'm 110% in it. Okay. And I think that's my alcoholic thinking. That's always been there. You know, if it's bad stuff, I'm 110% in bad stuff. If it's good stuff, I'm 110% in good stuff. Okay. And so when I committed to change my diet and my exercise, 
and I truly commit, not just say, I'm going to do this for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm 110% in it. And now I'm like, well, I'm in my mid forties and let's see how fit we can get, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I, I would say I, I kind of go extremes on things and I'm trying to make those extremes healthy things today. You know, are you downloading apps on your phone and stuff like that in conjunction with your, you mean, uh, like workout apps, like calorie apps? No, and no, meal. no, no, I'm not. I'm just kind of keeping a track in my head mentally doing yeah. it. So I want to read something from page 62 of uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to get your thoughts on this. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that at some time in the past, we have made decisions based upon self, which later placed us in a position to be harmed. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us have had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce them. Oh, wait, here we go. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. When I got to that part of the literature, I was a little insulted about it, and I was a little shocked about it because it talks about how we're selfish and self-centered to the extreme though we usually don't think so. Mm -hmm. And so in hindsight, I started to think about it. I was like, damn, Mike, you do think about yourself a lot, mm -hmm. like a lot, a lot. Yep. And I started to think about self-reliance versus God re reliance. I started thinking about self-discipline versus God discipline. And I, I remember, I don't know how many years I was sober at that point, but I was like, I was like, this book and this literature is asking me to change everything. Yeah. It's asking me to change everything about who I think I am, how I belong in the world, how the world is, how they are, how God is. I mean, it's, it's, it's trying to reprioritize and recalibrate and re, re just reposition everything that I think about the world. And I have to agree with this and go along with this, or I got to like, just go. Yeah. I have to leave. Well, and what I realized on all that is, yeah, I had to change everything also, but if I want different results, I got to do different things, you know? And so if my way was not working before, I got to try these other ways. Let's at least try it and fail Yeah, and say, I've tried it and, uh, I tried it and they've worked for me. It's, it's amazing. And I'm in the firm belief that on self-discipline or God discipline or whatever, I have to be disciplined enough to take the action. I'm in the action business. God's in the outcome business. And so if I take the action, no matter what the outcome is, if I rely on it that it's God's outcome, then I, if it's good or bad, then I can either take the lesson out of it or I can thank God for it. But that's not my outcome. And so that gets me out of the, the anxiety of the future also on stuff, you know? Yeah, I agree 100% with that. When I was early in sobriety, I got I got sober in Oceanside, California, Carlsbad, California, San Diego County, 
long story short, when I got sober, I, I started, I mean, I was, my, my brain was scrambled, dude. My brain was scrambled, but I was trying to get sober and I was trying to like figure it out and, you know, get sober. And so, uh, I, I, one of the things I realized early in sobriety, or it seemed like I realized, I was like, I'm going to have to develop some self-discipline. I was like, I don't have the ability, like, I don't have the ability to go to bed at appropriate time. Like, I don't know how to select a good girl. All my girlfriends are crazy. You know, I don't know how to like not eat two tacos for a dollar at Jack in the box. Like, I don't know how to like not steal from work. Like, I don't know how to not cheat on my girlfriend. Like, so for real, for real, if I'm going to be like getting better, I got to figure out how to like get some self-discipline. That's what I was saying to myself in early sobriety. And so I figured out a hack in early sobriety. Uh, and I, I didn't figure it out. Somebody told me about it at the Moose Lodge in, in Oceanside, California. They said, dude, there's a hack for that self-discipline stuff if you don't have it yet. And I go, yeah, yeah, what's that, dog? And he goes, listen, you know when the best time to go to a meeting is, an AA meeting? And I go, no, dude, when? He goes, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. <laughs> right. He goes, go whether you want to or go whether you don't want to. That's right. He's like, just go anyway. It doesn't matter if you have self-discipline. Right. It doesn't matter if you want to go. Right. Just do the right next right thing. And the next right thing for your ass in early sobriety is go to a meeting whether you feel like it or not. Right. And so I was like, okay, dog, I don't have, I don't have any self-discipline really. So uh, I'm going to go to a meeting. Okay, I'm going to do what that says. I'm going to go if I want to. And then I'm also going to go if I don't want to. Right. And so I, I got that little hack and I was like, yo. So, you know. Two or three, four or five days later, I didn't want to go to a meeting, but I got up and I went anyway. And that was the very beginning of me figuring out how to get that self-discipline hack working in early sobriety is do something that I know is going to be for good, good for me in spite of what I thought about it. Right. Or in spite of what I, I felt about it. Well, and some of the self-discipline I've learned also is like on food. If food's in front of me, I'm going to eat it, right? <laughs> okay. I was probably taught that as a kid, like clean your yeah, plate. Yeah, finish your food. Yeah. So what's your hack on that? What do you do on that? I only put certain things in front of me. Like what do you mean, at a restaurant or at your house? Or at my house or at a restaurant. Oh, So you like know, you won't buy That's what like... I do now is I, I, I order a smaller portion. I'm going to finish whatever portion's in front of me. <laughs> I'll muscle something down if I need to, you know. Yeah. You go away from the restaurants to give you a four-pound portion of lunch. <laughs> right, you know. Yeah. And uh, so those kind of self-discipline things I, I have to do. And that's the action part, you know. Yeah. Just like are going to the gym. I, I have to get to the gym. Oh my God, that's so hard. And then once I'm at the gym, what then what do I do? But what if you don't want to go? Well, it's kind of like you go when you want to and you go when you don't want to. You can use that there too. Yeah, of course. Ugh, but so you know, hard. if I go to the gym and I don't have, uh, like I have a workout on my phone, I just follow yeah. the workout. Okay, uh -huh. I got to get through this before I can leave. So that's that's the little self-discipline hacks I do. Have also. you ever had to pray to God to get your ass to the gym? Like, have you ever said a prayer like, God, I don't want to go to the gym. Can you please get me there? Help? I haven't done that yet. Done no. <laughs> well, desperate times call for desperate measures. But if you, if, you know, if I get committed, I'm going to do 110% in it. And what I was doing before is I was, I'd go to the gym for a few months. I'd feel better. Life would get busy. Yeah. I'd forget to go. And I'm trying to like instill that that has to be a part of my program also. I have to, it's mind, body, and soul, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've done the mind and soul for 
three and a half, almost four years now. Yeah. Hadn't focused much on the body, and I'm trying to do that part too, the physical part too. Yeah, and if you're listening and you haven't gotten there yet and you're not working 100% on mind, body, and soul, you give yourself grace. Give oh, absolutely. Because it could take years. Yeah. It could take years, dude. You might not get to – it doesn't matter what order you get to these things in, just eventually get to them. And eventually, I mean, like, give yourself – like, if – I mean, for me, it was over a decade plus of sobriety before yeah. I started to look at the body because I was younger, but then I got older and I was like, yo, I can't eat pizza and Dr. Pepper at 10 p.m. Yep. And then I was like, because, and then I was like, well, why can't I keep doing that? And then I was like, because you get heartburn, dog. Right. And when you, if you knock down a large pizza, a pepperoni pizza at 10 o'clock, uh, and, and you drink a Dr. Pepper, and you're going to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with heartburn. Right. And I was like, okay, I can't do that. So I slowly by a little, and I'm still working on. Uh, my diet and trying to get that. Well, I've up. also given myself grace if uh, if I do have pizza and Dr Pepper at ten a.m. or ten p.m. I don't beat myself up anymore about <laughs> it. And what I do is the next day I get back on track. You know, yeah. Yeah, maybe do it one month, one night a month instead yeah. of instead of saying, "Well, I've done that. Okay, it's all out the window now." Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. I agree. I want to talk about step eleven for a minute. I'm going to okay. read that for the audience so they can hear what that sounds like. Here it goes, just like this. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Can you please talk to us about the styles and forms of meditation and prayer that you're currently using? What I've done with my program is I say prayers how I speak. Okay. And I even changed like the third step prayer to my language of it, and it means more to me. You know, and um, what does it sound like? You want you remember what it sounds like? Do you have it written? Well, down? I'd have to written. No, I don't have it written down. But you know, it's the quickest prayer I know is "Your will, not mine." Uh-huh. Um, or you know, on the "Please take the reins of my life and guide my way." I give, I give you my all, good and bad, and distribute how you feel will best serve your will, you know? And so I say those kind of things. It's the same prayer, but it's a little bit in my language. It's not word for word. Because mm-hmm. when I try to word for word it, I, I'm not meaning what I'm saying. I'm trying to read something, you know? Are you regimented? Do you do it in the morning? I like- do it in the morning, but I also pray throughout the day. You know, I, the first thing I do when I wake up, I grab my phone. I read my daily reflection that's on my phone. I get an email every morning from it. Okay. And uh, then is that, I, a, is that an app? Uh, I, my, that first sponsor, temporary sponsor I got, he signed me up to this mailing list. I don't even know where the email comes from. You get it every morning, but I get it every morning. It also has native American daily reflections. Also has Buddhists and daily reflections. It's cool. It is cool. And it's free. It's free. Yeah. Don't know where it comes from. Somebody blows you up every morning. Someone does it. And I appreciate his service for doing it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I get, I'm on the same, I'm on a different one. It's called for today. Uh huh. And so, yeah, it's got the daily mail meditation it's got the thought for the day it's got the prayer for the day it's got some bible verses it's got some you know action activities and so you know sometimes i just delete it yeah because <laughs> it's, it's long well i'll read a one of, i won't read them all you yeah. know and uh but what it does is start having me think uh in the right thoughts and then i'll say a little prayer then i'll uh start my day now some days i have my kids my kids wake up they're starving i have to jump up make pancakes or whatever you know get cereal going and i forget yeah because i'm hitting the ground running that happens some days 
And what I usually do when I remember that I hit the ground running and I didn't do my prayers, I'll sit down by myself, I'll close my eyes, and I'll say some prayers to myself. And, uh, you ever done it in the car at a stoplight? Absolutely. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you realize you're like, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, I didn't do my prayer and meditation. Absolutely. Feel freaked out, light turns red, you're like, okay, wait a minute. I think the only wrong way to pray is not to pray. It doesn't matter where you pray or how you pray or anything. It's just the fact of making that connection out there and getting out of yourself. You know, I used to have a big problem when I first came in and they're like, well, you can come up with any God you want to. Use the doorknob as your God. And I was like, what do you mean by it? I can't look at the silver doorknob and think that's my God. I'm not, I may be an imbecile, but I'm not that much of an imbecile, you know. But I, now I understand what that means. It doesn't matter what you choose to call God. That's a human problem. God doesn't care what we call him. And it's just making that connection and making that attempt to reach outside of yourself. And once a little spark is lit, it can turn into a huge forest fire. All you need is that little spark to get going. So that's a, it's a powerful tool that I've learned in this program. And once you do hook up to that power, how do you think that relates to keeping you away from drugs and alcohol? I always viewed alcohol or drugs as kind of recharging my batteries, especially when I kept it on the weekends. During the week, I get wound up tight. I can't wait for the weekend where I can recharge my batteries. I've realized alcohol and drugs gives you kind of a false spiritual experience. Alcohol is the solution to alcoholism. Alcoholism is our way of thinking, and we need that spiritual experience somehow. And so I have to replace that. If I remove alcohol and drugs, I have to replace that with something else. And I replace it with spirituality. The more I do that, the more comfort I take in my everyday life, the less I want drugs and alcohol. And uh, it didn't happen overnight uh, of realizing that stuff. Um, but now when I, I, I don't need to recharge my batteries or when I do, I can stop and say a little prayer. And it took me a lot of times of trial and error to realize that works for me. That's why drugs and alcohol are a turnoff to me now. I don't need that anymore. I've, I've found it in this other way. So why is going to meetings important? Why do you think meeting attendance is important? Does that mean anything to you? The longest I've been without going to a meeting is two, and a half, two weeks when I've had my kids over the summer. I get them for two two-week periods instead of one one-month period. You know what happens to me is I slowly start forgetting that I need that spiritual aspect. And I slowly get a little more snappy, I'm a little more snappy with my kids. I'm not bad. I don't sit there and rage or yell or right. anything. I'm not that type of person, but I'm, I'm just a little off. A little less patient. And so what meetings does is, or does for me is I hear other people's stories. I hear their experiences. Um, and I say, yeah, that happened to me too. And I hear what they've done about it and I say, oh yeah. And it, it has me remember who and what I am. I'm an alcoholic and I need to constantly be seeking this stuff or I'm going to seek it another way. And I'm not willing to go back to that other way. You know, also what it has me do is get around other people It's the fellowship and, uh, alcoholics are are well-known isolators and i live alone my kids don't live with me full-time and i can isolate very easily and uh, i i can take comfort in it i'm not doing it for bad reasons but i like doing my own thing sometimes you know yeah and when i get in meetings and i'm around other people it gets me out of that little pattern of that 
in a healthy way that I, I say to myself, oh, yeah, I needed that, you know? Mm-hmm. I was talking to a girl the other day off the mic, you know, not, not within the context or confines of the show, but I was asking her about meeting attendance and I was asking her how her meeting attendance was. And she's like, yeah, I fell off a little bit. You know, I've been going as much. And I was like, yeah, she's like, you know what happens to me when I don't go to meetings? I'm like, no, dude, what happens to you when you don't start going? She goes, I get itchy, bitchy and twitchy. Yeah. I like that. I go itchy, bitchy and twitchy. I like that. She goes, yeah, that's what happens to me after a couple of weeks, man. I lose my patience and I get grouchy. You know, when I first started coming, there was an old guy, Mm -hmm. um, old timer. Yeah. And uh, he said that he goes to church and there's these little old church ladies that know that he's an AA. Okay. And they said, uh, they said to him, so do you still go to those AA meetings? And he said, yeah, I do. And they said, oh, okay. And he said, do you still go to that church thing? And they said, (laughs) they kind of like looked in awe, but. It's the same thing as going to church or going to the gym. That's what meetings are. You have to keep doing it. You can't go to the gym one time and get in great shape. Mm -hmm. You can't go to church one time and and be spiritual, you know? Yeah. And that's how meetings are for me, too. I got to repetitively do it, you know? Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about that, and I want to get a little bit judgy. Mm -hmm. And this is my personal opinion. Sure. And this is not in the big book of Alcoholics. Sure. This is a a thought, and this is an opinion that I keep to myself almost all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna fire it off right here. So let's let's do some fireworks going on real quick. Okay, let's do it. Put your seatbelt on. Here comes my opinion. Okay, so when I talk to people, and I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about other people. That's why I'm talking about getting judgy. When I talk to people that have um, lessened their meeting attendance or backed way off on their meeting attendance, but they're still sober Mm -hmm. and they still consider themselves part of Alcoholics Anonymous, Mm -hmm. and I talk to them. And I know they haven't been to a meeting in a long time because they tell me. Yep. And I'm like, well, what's that like for you? Because, um, you know, when I first met you, you were going all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's how I fell in love with you. And that's how we became friends. And we had so much in common. You seem like you're doing so good. And now you have, you're telling me you haven't been to a meeting in six months. And almost invariably, they will say the sentence to me, but I'm okay. I'm doing fine. Right. Fair. Fair enough. Yep. It's fair enough for them to say that. Now, here comes the controversial part or the part where you could be like, well, Mike, that's a little extreme or Mike, that's a little judgy. But my observation or my comeback to that is, okay, so you told me I haven't been doing meeting six months. You told me you're doing fine. What I'm, okay, that's fine. That's beautiful. What I'm concerned about is the new people that are coming into Alcoholics Anonymous in the last six months that you haven't been there and how are they doing? Right. You are not there as an example to them of recovery you're not there and as an example of helping them you're not there as an example of somebody that uh has is recovered Mm -hmm. and part of our you know sobriety or the way that we pay things back is to pass the message on to the newcomer so yeah fair enough you're okay fair enough you're still sober fair enough you're doing okay but what are you doing to give back what are you doing to help people and be an example of of what it's like to put you you can't put your hand out to you can't extend your hand out and try to help the newcomer and give him your phone number if you're not there yeah i agree with that 100 so is that judgy no or I, is it accurate 
I think it's accurate for me, but I think... Yeah. And it's selfish I, of them, I think. I agree, but I also can't judge other people's I programs. Do sometimes a little I, bit. I do too. I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but I'm saying what people do in their lives is their, their I prerogative. Know, I know. And but I can't for me, I, I need to be able to reach out the hand when there's a newcomer and they say, how did you get through the first night? And yeah. I'll say, you know what I did? I went home and went to bed. Yeah. Or I went home and... Went to bed, woke up early, got straight to another meeting. Try that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Or you got to be, or somebody's got to be there to suggest ninety meetings in ninety days. Ninety meetings, ninety days. If whatever. you're not there to say that, then they might not hear that. But you know, another thought I had when you said uh, it's almost always, but I'm doing fine. Yeah. Is I don't want to be doing fine. Yeah. What do you? I want to be doing great. Yeah. And that's always my my. Uh, benchmark you know yeah i always want to be doing great and i think i have to work for that every day to get to be doing great you know it's not something that just comes automatically there's a military motto called aim high do you remember when the military had that Uh, that was the air force i think they're talking it was part of their marketing right they're like aim high right i mean i i want to i want to my goal in life today is to be a better man today than i was yesterday i do the same thing and i shoot for excellence every morning absolutely and you know what's great about shooting for excellence every morning throughout the day is if i don't hit it and i hit right below the mark you know what i hit great yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like I might not hit yeah. excellent, but I hit great or really good. Aim small, miss small, right? <laughs> and uh, that's that's the goal is I want to be shooting for great. Yeah, And that's what I was trying to do when I was drinking and using too. I wanted to feel great. <laughs> I gravitate towards things that make me feel great, right? Yeah, you were just using the tools. I was using the to- wrong tools. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, that part, but that part of your story and your experience is, is, is important so you can realize, well, I really don't need to be mining in that area and using those particular tools. Yeah, they don't work for me. They did for a little while, maybe. Well, they, I had some great times drinking. And using, yeah, me too. But ultimately, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was the, it was my downfall, and ultimately it will kill me in a miserable way, yeah, and they, I don't want that. They were a good stopgap measure for that time of your life and your circumstances, which was leading you into greener pastures, which in my experience, and I believe your experiences as well, which is sobriety yep if they if if there wasn't good times you wouldn't do it after the first time right so yeah yeah yeah. there obviously is but i ultimately know that the big picture yeah it was it was misery most of the time in the big picture right yeah with moments of good times yeah and i was you know deluding myself and i was wasted most of the day most of the time so i was kind of deluding myself about what really is a good time Right. And now it's great most of the times with small moments of bad times. Yeah. I, I say this thing that's not a part of the literature, it's not in the big book, but I say to myself and, and to other people occasionally I'll say it in a meeting, is I'm comfortable on my own skin almost all the time now. Yeah. And I was like, that might not be that big a deal to you. Yeah. But it means everything to me. Because when I was six years old, I wasn't comfortable in my own, own skin. Yeah. And that's why I think I was an alcoholic before I took my first drink. I, I felt off for some reason, you know? Yeah. And that part, yeah, I, I still haven't, I mean, I felt the same way, but I, and I still haven't figured all that part out yet, but I'm not even worried about figuring yeah, that I'm part out. Yeah, I'm not either. I'm just doing other things yeah, now. I feel good now. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about your spiritual journey that you've had since you've been in sobriety. Have you used any particular literature because our, our big book alcoholics anonymous talks about how the great religions of time are treasure troves and we are encouraged to go out and explore the treasure troves of the great religions of the past have you done anything any spiritual seeking that you want to talk about in early sobriety yeah so i'd say 
on that year where I could not stay sober, I call it my lost year, I was really seeking some type of spirituality and I didn't know what. I had these huge animosities towards Christianity. Um, I couldn't uh, reconcile the fact in my mind that the Vatican has these gold-plated ceilings and yet they're starving children in the world, you know? And I couldn't see past the hypocrisies of some uh, maybe Western religions. And so I, I started seeking when I was a late teenager, I read the book Siddhartha, which is about Buddha and Buddhism, you know? Oh, that's cool. Uh huh. And so I kind of knew some of those paths. I knew, um, some native American paths. And so I, I said, I need to figure something out. So I'm going to start, I'm going to read them all until I figure out which one I like. And I downloaded the Quran. I couldn't get that into it. Um, I got into Buddhism. Um, I bought a book called uh, The Heart of Buddhist Teachings and uh, started really getting into that. I really like Buddhism. I honestly, I don't even know if Buddhism is a religion or a way of life, right? I think you can be a, a Christian Buddhist. and uh, Everybody's got their own path. They figure it out. Right. So I realized I was seeking I still love a lot of Buddhism, you know, I think that plays a big role and and it's not about the reincarnation or anything. It's about the suffering and everyday man, you know, yeah. and we all are born with some suffering and I believe all that. I explored Buddhism a little bit in my first year of sobriety. You talked about exploring it during your, your lost year. I, I got into uh, Buddhism my first year of sobriety because I was uh -huh. seeking, I was yeah. heavily seeking. Me I was, too. I was like, what am I doing? What am I not doing? What should I be doing? And so I bought a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And that book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, was recommended to me by some people that I visited at a Buddhist temple in Vista, California. Uh -huh. And I had just a few months sober, dude. And I was running around Southern California. And I was like, I just kept driving by this Buddhist temple. And I kept, it looked badass. Yeah. And I was like, yo, dog. I was like, I got a few months sober. I'm trying to figure out whose God is there a God? Is there not a God? Should I be Jewish? Should I be Christian? Should I be right. Buddhist? Should I just be believe in nature? Should I use the doorknob as my higher power? So I went in there and they took me through some meditation classes. They're like, read this book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I said, okay. They started to teach me about uh, desires, like the word mm -hmm. and attachment, non-attachment mm -hmm. to earthly things and the way to be happy, and, and, and I just found it very, very interesting. Yeah, I still love it, you know. Yeah, I got much respect. And all that, in turn, as I was seeking, and and I got some more sobriety, I got sober. I was introduced to Richard Rohr also. He's a Franciscan priest, I guess, Franciscan monk, and uh, he kind of started talking Christianity, and he's the first time that I could... Uh, Get past my hypocrisies on Christianity. How he explained it is in kind of layman's terms, you know. And so he said that he was living in this hermitage in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there was an AA meeting that would meet at his um, little hermitage. And he said the AAs would stand outside his door and smoke their cigarettes. And he goes, well, they were all real nice people. Um, I was very curious of what was going on in there. So I asked if I could go in there and um, I decided to, they, they allowed me, even though I'm not an alcoholic and it was a closed meeting, but I went in there and I'd go in every day and I saw more spirituality going on in there than ever happened in the church on Sundays. And so it made me realize we're doing some of this wrong, you know? And so what 
what he did is he tried to teach it in a different way. And he basically um, started teaching Christianity in kind of not an AA way, but more on layman's terms way. And, uh, man, I could so relate to that, you know? And it, he, he does some things that are probably controversial. I think he was um, investigated for heresy by the Vatican, you know? And, uh, and uh, they did not uh, charge him with heresy. I mean, wow. so they, he passed that. But his teachings are pretty uh, radical for the traditional christian view but it's all beautiful stuff you know so after that and his kind of spiritual hero was thomas merton so i started reading thomas merton charles kennedy i think was on this show he was and uh he, he passed away nine days after he recorded his episode here with me i never made that announcement here on the show i never told the listeners that well yeah he was a pretty neat guy and uh i met i saw him at a party and we talked we were talking in the kitchen most of the party and he really got into Richard Rohr also this is after I'd already gotten into him he went and studied under him and uh, he also got into this guy Thomas Keating and suggested I get this book from him and I did yeah and um, so it allowed me to open my mind to all the different religions you know and yeah. I always had this conception even as a kid like okay I was born in Texas I'm probably going to be a Christian, right? I'm probably going to be born in a Christian household. I mean, there's there's Jewish people here and Muslim people and all that, but the majority are Christian people. If I was born in Saudi Arabia, I'd probably be a Muslim. I'd probably be born in a Muslim household and be raised a Muslim. If I was born in China or probably a Buddhist, you know? If I was born in India, maybe a Hindu. And so... Because I was born in in Texas and raised in a Christian household, does that mean that I'm the only right one and I'm the only one going to heaven and and God doesn't smile as fondly on those other religions? And there's some very good Muslim people that live a very good life, and yet they won't be allowed to be smiled on in God and death. So I, I never could reconcile that either, you know? And what I've, I believe, and um, I still think this to this day, is most religions were that group of people's understanding of spirituality, you know, and that's how they wrote it. And doesn't make one wrong or one right. Everyone has to seek in their own way. That's a beautiful way to think about it. However, I do know a couple, probably the two most hardcore Christians that I do know. Yeah, they'd be like, yeah, that's how it is, dude. Yeah, we're right. The Christians are right, and the Muslims are not right, and they're not going to heaven, and they're you know the Jewish guys are wrong, and they're not you know they're wrong. I know, and there's a lot of that, and I can't <laughs> get behind that. Believe. That's what they believe. Because man. I I believe in an all loving God. That's what that's what's a beautiful about the program about Alcoholics Anonymous is we're a spiritual program, not a religious program, and we're set up to meet you where you're at, wherever you are at when you arrive. Right, people like me and you. I would call us, I mean, I don't hope you don't mind, and you can disagree with me after I say this if you want to, but I think I'm right. I think that you and I would classify ourselves as, as former non-believers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you and I showed up, and we're like, there is no God. Right, absolutely. And they're like, and, and if it was like, well, what do you mean? You and I would say, 
that people that believe in quote unquote air quotes God are, are weak. Yeah. And foolish and delusional. Right. I mean what else simple minded. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the the pendulum for you and I has swung all the way from that mindset all the way over to we love God, God loves us, and God saved our souls. You know? Right. Absolutely. That's a long way to go. It is a long and the way. The only to way go. that you and I made that pendulum swing or were able to make that journey was through the crux and the disease of alcoholism forcing us to. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something I was trying to seek out because I want to be esoterically a better man or I want to do right or I want to do the right thing or I want to be better. It's nothing about that. It's boatloads of pain mm -hmm. and confusion that were administered to me through the apparatus of drugs and alcohol that forced me to seek a different way. That's right. And now that I've been through that journey, and I've been, and I've just I got nothing but good things to say about it. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And I don't. I didn't wish I had to go through all that pain. Me either. Man. I, I wish I had a lower pain See, threshold. No. But I think if there was one instance of something that didn't happen, if I was arrested eight times, not nine times, I wouldn't have done it. You know, yeah, yeah. I needed every bit of it to get to where I went to. I've heard people in meetings say that I need every drink I ever took to get me here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the, the there's a part in the literature I believe that talks about why all this insistence that every alcoholic must hit bottom or else he won't be ready to work. And they're like, yeah, well, who cares to like do all the work that it requires to get here, stay here, and be here if you're still drinking? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't make any sense. And if your life hadn't fallen apart and you can still do it, then why not continue to do it? You know? Yeah. Have you ever heard that expression? There's a lot of these expressions or ways of speaking or colloquialisms that I like. And one of them is called, uh, you ever heard the expression, I painted myself into a corner? Uh -huh. Yeah, that's what happened to me with my drinking and drugging, dude. I painted myself into a corner. Right. I was backed in the corner. I painted myself in there. I was like, well, there's nowhere else to go. I apparently uh, don't have any other choice. And so that at that point, a decision, need to be, a decision needed to be made. Let's turn our attention to the promises. Mm -hmm. And the promises, they're sprinkled all throughout the big book. Oh, yeah. And I want to read the promises. And then maybe you can talk to me about any of these. Or you can pick other promises that have come in true in your life as a result of your sobriety. Is that okay with you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here, this is from page 86 of the big book. It sounds like this. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door upon it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scales we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. What are your thoughts on the promises? Well, you know, the first meeting I went to, we read the promises at the end of every meeting. We don't do that at Preston Group. But it's one of the things that I held on to in the beginning. Like, 
all right, if you're promising me this, I, I can't wait. And if they don't come true, then I don't know if I'll buy into this stuff, you know? Yeah, it's part of the contract. Part of the contract. And it says right there on the last line, they will always materialize if we work for them. Not they will sometimes materialize. Yeah, an implied warranty. It is an implied warranty. And I can say, honestly, all of these have come true in different ways, in ways that I didn't think that they would come true. Like um, uh, fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. Not that I don't, not that I got a huge bank account now. Actually, my bank account's a lot less today than it ever was when I was drinking and using, you know. Um, what What is gone from it is the fear. I don't fear that I'm not going to eat today. I don't fear that I'm going to lose my house tonight, you know. The fear of that is gone. And before, I could never get enough money, you know? And so some of those things have worked out in much different ways than I thought that they would when I originally said, all right, these are the promises. I can't wait. <laughs> I was, I was ready, ready to win the lottery, you yeah, know? Like, that says I'm going to be rich, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, like, no, I like that economic insecurity one. Yeah. And, uh, but I think the one that stands out the most to me and the most meaningful one to me is we will comprehend comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace because i did not know what serenity was before and i did not know what peace was and i would say even since i was a young child i never had that stuff i never grew up in a house that was a peaceful home that was serene so my comfort zone was not in those zones and today I understand what that means, and uh, I have that in my life. And, of course, things happen in my life. That's what life is. Life's full of ups and downs and disappointments and sadness and happiness and all the gambit. And I think the hardest, one of the hardest parts of sobriety, especially early sobriety, is now you got to feel your feelings, you know, <laughs> which a lot of those feelings I had never felt before. Oh. I didn't know what that felt like. And yeah. so it, it was uncomfortable, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I know what serenity is now. I know what peace is now. And most days I can live in that. Oh. Not, not every day, yeah. of course. And uh, it is an amazing thing that I wouldn't trade for anything. I remember uh, in early sobriety, uh, I, I was in a, I won't explain the whole thing. I'll just say that I was in a class and we were talking about feelings. This was an early sobriety. We're talking about feelings. And uh, they kind of just pointed at me, the teacher of the class, the counselor pointed at me. She goes, Michael, we're going to talk about feelings today. I was like, okay, fine, whatever. And I had like just a few weeks over. She's like, we're talking about feelings today. I was like, fine. And she had a dry erase board. She was standing in front of a dry erase board with a, with a, with a pencil. And she's like, okay. You guys just start shouting out feelings and nobody said anything. We all just sat there and she's like, Michael, you let's talk about feelings. Uh, Cause you know, you're sober now and you're going to start to feel feelings now and, and things are going to start to get real for you guys. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. And she's like, you name some feelings, just yell some out. I'm going to write them down on the board. I was like, okay. And uh, I was like, well, like I like to go outside and I like to do stuff. <laughs> And she looked at me. <laughs> she looked at. She looked at me. She goes, "What?" I go, I, "I go, I go, I go. I like to go outside and do things outside." She's like, "Bro, that's not a feeling, right?" 
That's an like, action. Yeah, yeah. It's like she, she's like, dude. <laughs> the point of that story is that two things. One, that's a true story that really happened, and two, I didn't even know what feelings were. Right. Like because I was so. I love the Pink Floyd song, Comfortably Numb. I had been drinking and doing so much drugs. I had gotten comfortably numb where I didn't feel anything. Yeah, me either. I didn't really feel anything. And you know what's funny is I have a I have an older sister I talked about, and yeah. she she's not an alcoholic at all. Yeah. But she said recently in the past, I don't know, a few months or six months, she quit drinking alcohol altogether. Okay. And she was drinking um, a couple glasses of wine a couple days a week at um other parents houses you know that's what a lot of parents do when they get together yeah and their kids play yeah and she said even that was keeping her numb and when she quit drinking even that amount Uh uh-huh she's had all these feelings come in that she hadn't had really yep and she was like i didn't realize a couple glass of wine a couple times a week was keeping me numb but it was you know Wow. And she was like, that's the hardest part of giving up drinking. I'm like, yeah, you think, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I understand. And I go, but the beauty of that is now you get to feel. And she goes, absolutely. You know? Mm -hmm. And so it can, even little amounts can really affect how you feel, you know? A hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree with that. Have you ever heard something in an AA meeting? And I mean like a snippet or a sound bite to your soul or whatever. Have you ever heard something uh, in a discussion meeting in AA that was so profound that it's changed your life forever? I think the first time I heard uh, God is either everything or he's nothing, that was hugely impactful. I didn't realize it was in the book, you know, mm-hmm. someone said that. And I think one of the most, um, if I'm really thinking of one, it was my second day in AA and this older lady came up to me and I was sharing, you know, and sharing about how I had problems with God and all that. And this older lady, and I don't remember her name, and I haven't really seen her since, came up to me after the meeting, and she said, so what's your idea of God? What does your God look like? And I said, well, my God, I guess, is a big white beard, you know, sits on a cloud, holds a thunderbolt or whatever, punishes you when you're bad, gives you gifts when you're good, you know. And she goes, well, my God's all loving. My God is not judgmental. Why don't you try my God for a little bit? And it kind of gave me that first little, aha, that's how I can create my own higher power. I can try something else, you know? Well, you know, now I can go to church all the time and I hear the message and it's, it's crazy. It's the same message as it was before, but I needed AA to be able to open my mind to that. Okay. Your ears have been cleaned out and your soul has been washed off and you can, your receiver has been. Yeah, I can, I can hear it now. I can hear the metaphors and not the, the literal uh, saying of it, too, you know? So maybe their transition is kind of still the same, but our receiving units have been repaired. Ab- absolutely, or replaced. Yeah, how's your little sister doing? She's doing good. She's also uh, in the process right now of uh, really doing some soul-seeking, and uh, it's great. It's great to see and uh great to see people trying to work on themselves and she's doing that she's doing some individual therapy and i think it's important for everybody you know and it's neat when you see a family unit start trying to seek right however they're seeking (laughs) and uh, you know when i made my amends to my dad uh, my dad had you know, like I told you what he said about the Pope and all that. He said, you know, when you were going through all, and he, 
when he when I made the amends, he of course said, "Of well, I just want to love you, or I just want you to do good. I love you, you know." And he said, "You know, I want to tell you something. When you were going through all your hard times this past year or two, he goes, it made me jump back into seeking spirituality, and I've uh, gotten back into church, and I met with the priest, and we've had one-on-one interviews, and." Uh, I'm really taking it serious. So you, in turn, have helped me. And so those are the some of the things, like, man, there's bad repercussions of alcoholism, but there's also some good repercussions of recovery in alcoholism. It trickles down also, you know? That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. I never, I wasn't expecting you to say that. Yeah. Were you shocked when he said that? I was crying (laughs) (laughs) well i wish you were crying now so we could get this on the podcast right i mean i i i was absolutely shocked you know that is a shocking thing for to hear to hear your father say right uh i had a discussion i won't go into too much detail in the story but i i've had some um really really cool shocking uh conversations with my dad that never happened when I was drinking and never even happened during the first 20 years of my sobriety. It took, yeah. it took me into my 21st and 22nd year of sobriety to have these types of spiritually based conversations with my dad. And I broached the subject with him in a car where, yeah. he, where he couldn't get away. Right. I was driving and he was in the passenger seat. I had 21 years sober. We never talked about God. We never talked about spirituality. He never, dude, it was not a thing. Right. And so at 21 years sober, I was driving with my dad from Dallas to San Antonio, which is a six hour drive. <laughs> right. Oh, dude. So like 25 minutes into the drive, we still got five and a half hours to go. I was like, yo, dad. He's like, yeah. He probably thought I was going to say, do you want to stop at McDonald's? That is not what I said. Right. I said, hey, Dad, do you mind if we talk about God and spirituality for a little bit? Yeah. And we had never done that. Yeah. And he quickly said, sure, that would be fine. Yeah. And so I won't go into all the details of what happened was I started the conversation. That's awesome. I I said, Dad, you know I've been sober 21 years, and and I want you to know that I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, which you already know, and I want you to know that, that this last two plus decades of my 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 sobriety and the stuff that you're proud of me for and all that stuff is based off of my relationship with a God of my understanding and spirituality. And maybe not so much religion, but for sure, for sure, spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I want you to know that. He's like, oh, okay, I didn't really realize. Because he doesn't come to the AA meetings sure. with me. He, I didn't know it before I went to AA either. He doesn't know, dude. Yeah. He, knows I'm, he knows I'm sober. He knows an AA, I'm an AA, but he doesn't know the mechanics of, of it. Of course. So I told that to him. He's like, oh, okay, all right, on. that's cool. And he thought, that that was going to be it. That was the beginning. <laughs> right. And I was like, I was, I was just setting the table, dog. You were just opening the yeah, can at that point. Yeah, just start. He thought we about to like, so you want to go to Burger King or McDonald's? <laughs> right. He thought that's what we were getting, getting ready to talk about next. And I was like, no, dog, that's the beginning. I'm setting the table. And I was like, so now that you know that, I want to talk to you a little bit about God and whether you believe in God or not and what your thoughts on it are only because I'm curious. Yeah. Only because I'm curious. I was like, I I don't know what you're getting ready to say. You could tell me you don't believe in God, and that's fine. 
Or you could tell me you totally believe in God and that's fine, whatever. I just want to have an interesting discussion with you about that. And I won't share with you right now about what he did. Maybe I will on another podcast. I'm not going to do it right now, but I won't. But, but we ended up talking for like an hour. That's awesome. And a lot of things that he said to me were shocking. Yeah. Shocking what he said to me. Yeah. But guess what? I could not and would not have had those conversations if I wasn't 21 years sober. And I'll tell you what, I damn sure would not have them at all if I was drunk or high. Oh, 100%. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah, yeah I would have been able because I would have had nothing to say. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that some of that is that's that's what life is really all about right is connection seeking all that stuff and you're closed off from it when you're drinking and using you know yeah you're you're muted yeah or you're just having obscure (laughs) thoughts i mean you know you might think you're being spiritual but you're not (laughs) i mean really you know you're just talking super loud that's right uh remember that uh remember that uh uh, it was a tv show on it was called seinfeld and they had Mm -hmm. an episode about close talkers oh yeah do you remember close talkers i do did you know any drunks like that oh yeah and i might have been that sometimes you know (laughs) i don't know if i ever was i don't think i was maybe i was but i definitely had some alcoholic drunky drunk friends that we would go to the bars and they would get wasted and they would close talk yeah me. like back up dude too much dude. yeah like they would get like right here especially right. this one guy named mike s Ooh, i liked mike s except for when he drank but when mike s drank he would close talk me he would talk so first of all he would talk louder right like i totally hear him anyway he doesn't need to talk louder right he would crank his volume up and then he would get inside my personal space. And my personal space is not that big, dude. It's only like 18, 19 inches circumference around me. Like I, I'm 6'4", 235 pounds. I need a little bit of friggin' room, dude. And Mike S. would get right up on me and start yelling at me from like five inches away from my face. Yeah, that's About, uncomfortable. Yeah, and I didn't even want to hear what he was saying. Right. He didn't even want to hear what he was saying, probably. <laughs> I was like, shut up, dude. Right. I was like, can you back up? And then I saw that close talking episode on Seinfeld. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so true. It's so good. Okay, so we're getting close to the end of the podcast. Okay. I want to ask you final thoughts here in a minute, but before, so you can start gathering your, your thoughts together if you want to on the final thoughts. But before we get there, I want to ask you if there's anything specifically that you want to point out in the literature, whether it's the 12 and 12, the big book, the Quran, the Bible, anything Jewish-related, daily apps, anything like that. Is there anything, is there anything literature-related that you want to point out? I think... Uh the most important thing for me that has changed, absolutely changed my life is on page 53 that God is either everything or he's nothing. And, uh, man, that is a concept I never thought of before. And, you know, I, I always thought that if there was a God, which I don't even believe there is, then why would he care about my drinking problem and everything? But if there is a God and God is powerful enough to create the known universe as we know it, then God is absolutely everything. And if there is not a God, then there, there is nothing, right? And uh, so what is your choice to be? Well, when I believed there wasn't and there was nothing, I felt so empty inside. It was uh, even when I looked like I had it together, I did not have it together and it is believing that God is in everything has wholeheartedly changed my outlook on life, you know? And so that is why it's the most powerful statement for me, you know? 
my sponsor, uh, a sponsor named Scott D at the Preston Group. That's his favorite paragraph in the big book. He always says that. So I want to mm-hmm. read that real quick. We just had a quick discussion about it, but I want to let the listeners hear exactly what we're talking about. And like you said, it's on page 53. It's one paragraph. It sounds like this. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could no longer postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? Mm-hmm. And the longer that I'm sober and the more that my sponsor, Scott D., tells me that that's his favorite paragraph, I'll, I, I'm more and more drawn to it. It's still not my favorite paragraph. But What's your favorite paragraph? My, thank you for asking. Here we go. My last, my favorite paragraph in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the last paragraph on page forty-three of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it sounds just like this. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. That's my favorite paragraph in the mm-hmm. big book. And if I wanted to just quickly explain what that means to me, that means that my only hope for me and my redemption of my full-blown alcoholism, my full-blown drunk addiction, is uh, I have to be rescued by a higher power or I'm a dead man. Yeah, And I have to figure out a way to access that power. And for me, the way that I access that power is allowing spirituality to enter my life through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the secret sauce Mm -hmm. that is used to sprinkle that magic dust from the magic sky daddy all over my life. It is. It's the only way that I can feel it, see it, live it, and let it seep into my soul for me is through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, putting those things into effect and in action in my life, which allows me to do, say, think, and feel things that I could not do if I was drinking and drugging on a daily basis, which allows me to be a better man, a better husband, and just a better person and, and be sober. And the result of that is being comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. Absolutely. Which allows me to turn around and give it away and try to help other people, which is a big part of the reason I'm doing this podcast. And let's talk a little bit about dating and sobriety and what you think about that and what you've learned. Well, you know, I have dated in sobriety. I was in a two-year relationship in sobriety. I've only been sober three and a half years or a little over three and a half years. And uh, it was beautiful. I did a lot of first in dating. I mean, the first year, a lot of that was COVID. So I didn't travel sober before. I did that with a partner. That made it a little easier. And uh, she had been in the program a lot longer than me. I didn't have those fears of airports because I was with someone. It also taught me how to actually love and how to receive love, which I had not really done before. Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? I would say, you know, my parting thoughts are if there's someone out there struggling and on the fence, whether to get sober or not get sober, what do you do for fun and sobriety? And I'll just say this, for me, I didn't get sober to have a worse life. I got sober to have a better life. And if life was not better, I would not stay sober. Right. If if life wasn't tremendously better, I would not stay sober. My thought is, why not give it a shot? And if you don't like it, we'll refund you back all your misery, you know? Yeah. And uh, give it a shot. It could be the one thing that absolutely changes the course of your life for the better you won't miss out on anything by trying it you yeah. know you may miss out on a great life if you don't try it 
I'll, I'll, I'll tack on to that and add on that is that my preconceived notions about what recovery and AA and all that was going to look like was nothing about what it looked like and what it was nothing. really, really like when I got here. It wasn't near as weird. It wasn't near as scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a quick thought at the beginning. I was like, after I'd been here for just a couple minutes, I was like, is this a cult? Yeah. I was like, well, they got the word God on the, the reason I thought it was a cult quickly is I saw the word God on the, on the walls and then they started passing a bat around getting money right i was like yo there's money and there's god i was like yo this is a cult but then i was like and they figured out later i was like no that's not really well then i've heard or then i thought like a and i've heard this um man they're just brainwashing people in here yeah but guess what my brain needed to be washed (laughs) (laughs) it was at that point i needed a good washing on my brain 100 percent, me too my soul and my brain i remember thinking that in early spring i was like yo they're brainwashing me yeah i was like they're telling me all these little things on the wall like think 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 and first things first and they're like programming me with all this stuff it's kind of cultish and then I was like, they're brainwashing me. And then I was like, yo, your brain's dirty, dog. Yeah, you need it. Washed. I was like, and your yeah. soul is a little dark, bro. Yeah. You can stand with a little, a little whitewashing, man. Right. So let's talk about contact information. Is there any way that our listeners can get in contact with you if they feel like they want to talk to you or need you? They can reach you through me at Mike at SoberShares.com or yep. they can reach you directly. Do you want to give out any? Yeah, you could email me. My uh, email address is uh, C-H-O-R-A-B-I-N-1979 at gmail.com. Nice, nice. Hopefully some veterans reach out to you. A lot of times veterans reach out to veterans. If I have a mom on here, a lot of times uh, moms will reach out to the moms. A lot of the moms that come on here, they talk about mommy wine culture. Yeah. Like your older sister was talking about yeah. how she goes over to the friend's house and the mother's. They it's talk a real about deal. The, yeah, mommy well, wine Well, and culture. vets or veterans or military members are taught not to feel. You yeah. can't go up to your drill sergeant and say, hey, drill sergeant, <laughs> I feel sad today, you know? <laughs> what would he say? <laughs> Just get down and beat your face, which means do push-ups, you know? Oh, no. They yell at you stuff, too? Oh, yeah. And so do they cuss? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> they do. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've seen the full metal jacket, uh, you know? I mean, it's yeah. a lot similar to that. I think I think it's a little tailored now, you know, but... yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that experience. I didn't have that military experience. My dad did, and I'm super proud of him. And I see him reaping the benefits with the VA and everything like that. What else are you taking advantage of as far as being a veteran? Did you get it, your school paid for or your home loan or anything? So I got the GI bill and it was able, uh, to, um, I had, um, some college money. So my dad made me a deal. If I made my grades, we could use the college money to pay for college and I could live off the GI bill. Okay. And so that allowed me to not have to work and I could do 21 hours every semester. Ooh, and get that's a it. lot. Yeah. But it was a lot easier than the army. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, uh, then also, you know, I got arrested nine times in that year. Okay. And two of those times were DWIs uh-huh. and I got to go into veterans court. Um, what's that? So that's a court here in Texas where, uh, you know, I think it's usually drug or alcohol charges, but if you get charged in with something and you're a veteran, you can apply to veterans court and they can accept you. And, uh, does that mean the case gets moved there? The case gets moved there. It's a different judge, a whole different court. I've never even heard of it. And so all my cases were moved there. And, uh, if I think if there's like, felony assaults and stuff there's no way they'll yeah they're like we can't take that dog yeah it's they're trying to help vets you know yeah yeah. so i went and reported to the judge uh 
twice a month and told him how I was doing. I had a lot of programs I had to do. I had to pee test randomly and call in every morning. Mm-hmm. And it was about a year-long program, and I got all those charges dropped. Okay. Were there people, just out of curiosity, I don't know, I never heard of it, never been there. When you physically went to that court, were there people dressed in military garb? Like No, no, no. It's all veterans, you know. I and just wondered if they were. No, no, no. It's, full. A, it's a civilian judge. Okay. It's not a military judge. Oh, okay. I thought it was. A, they had a veterans program within that county. I think most counties in Texas. Oh, have okay. It. I thought it was like a separate system that they would pull your case out of like Garland and put it over in the military court. No, it was a military no, no. judge with the military lawyers no, 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 and military no. defendants. Well, I think uh, society has kind of realized that drug use and alcoholism is rampant in veterans, you know, and suicide's rampant. Yeah. There's a stat that 22 veterans commit suicide a day. Yeah, you know, we just came out of the longest war we've ever had in our history. And so I think we're really trying to put some effort into helping veterans, you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think we should, you know, not just because I'm a veteran and I'm selfish, but (laughs) I I, I pour some resources into it because I watch the news and all of a sudden. The government will pull out $22 billion out of their ass. Right. And they'll be like, we could spend this over here for real quick or something that happened two weeks ago. Right. I was like, how about you spend $22 billion over here on the school system? But, you know, I got out and I was allowed to use the GI Bill to live on and mm-hmm. had college money to pay college. Most people don't have that. They're not as fortunate as me. Most people don't have the opportunity to go to treatment centers a couple times in a year. Yeah. A lot of vets don't, you know. And so yeah. there's a lot of programs that... Uh, vets really need and um it's a it's a good thing i want to follow up on your story in a few weeks or a few years or a few months i don't know whenever you get back to me but i want to let the listeners know i am going to follow up with chris and see if he does reach out to the police officer who uh you know apprehended you i don't i feel dumb that i've never thought of that before well i didn't even think of it it just flashed in my mind yeah so i want you to keep in touch with me yeah and then you you can either come back on for four or five minutes and tell the story about what happened when you did it uh Mm -hmm. you know and or you can just tell me and i'll tell them yeah but i i do want to let the listeners know we're going to try to follow up on that and see if he's able to get in touch with that police officer and let him know about what happened in the back seat and then what happened uh, just a couple hours later in the jail on your knees was that how long between the back seat of that squad car and then you getting on your knees in the jail like an hour or two hours not even 30 minutes maybe uh, okay so that's pretty quick and those are two huge events one in the back of the squad car and the other one on, on your knees well in the i jail. knew what i needed to do once i had that moment of clarity and okay. i mean it was i was talking myself through it of I got to surrender this thing. I got to turn it over to this God I don't understand, you know? I knew enough about AA to know that. And those two events happened within an hour of each other. Uh Do you think that was one of the most important hours of your life? A hundred percent. Changed the course of my life. Exactly, right? Yep. A fork in the road. Yep, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I call my moment of clarity the same thing. Mine happened in a car. Mm-hmm. I was driving and it lasted 45 seconds. Yeah. It was for, I was in the car. You were in the car too. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. 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 And maybe you got to be moving and for real for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're both non-believers. That's right. <laughs> both became believers in the car. Mine lasted 45 seconds. It was, it was, it was what I'll call a moment of clarity. I'm not going to go into details and talk about it now, but I'll tell you it lasted 45 seconds. I'll tell you it was in a car and, it, and I'll call it a moment of clarity. And I'll say before that 45 seconds, I didn't believe in God. And then mm-hmm. after that 45 second experience, after that, I did believe in God. Right. And it was all directly related to my drug and alcohol use. Well, and I'll say this also, how lucky I feel that I grabbed onto that because I believe people have those thoughts all the time. Like 
This yeah. is going to be me. And then they get in the jail cell and they said, man, what was that? I was overreacting. You know? Yeah. 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 But I was able to grab onto it for some reason, you know, yeah. I was able to. Well, I think the scene was set in the jail cell for you to do what you did in the jail cell. Well, and if there was 10 people in the That's jail what cell, I'm saying, I dude. wouldn't have been able to do that either. Yeah, yeah. The scene was set. If there was 10 dudes in there and they were fighting and there was a yeah. guy on the Toilet using number two. As soon as you walk in, you probably wouldn't have done what you did. You'd <laughs> Can you guys like, please be quiet? I'm trying to do a prayer you'd here. You'd be like, yo, yeah. this is the most important hour of my life. Will you get off the toilet, bro? Yeah. <laughs> and you two stop fighting. Yeah, the scene was set, so I think it was destiny. It was meant to happen. Kismet. All right, well, thank you for joining us on Shover Shares. Thank you for been, having me. It's been super fun, super moving experience. I know you, but I didn't know you enough. Like, I know you a lot better. Mm -hmm. If y'all need to contact me and, and get in touch with Chris, just reach out to me at mike at com, and we'll get back with you guys. So before we get out of here, I want to ask you to do me a favor. I want you to read page 164 from the big book for me, and it's called A Vision for You. So go ahead and read that, please. A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for listening to Sober Shares. We'll see you guys on the next episode.